0: Hello, listeners. Thanks for checking out this Literary Gun Barrel episode, and more generally, for listening to Bond by Numbers. You know, we do appreciate the comments and the suggestions, particularly given how alive and exciting the James Bond universe is with podcasting. There's a lot of great content out there, and it's great being part of this world, and we're really happy so far with how the show's been going, and that so many of you are enjoying it. Now, we thought it would be fun to take a breather every four or five eps, and running alongside our film reviews, share samples of our conversations on the corresponding stories, the source material. Now, if you've already enjoyed the first couple of bonus episodes, then you know that we've pieced together these things from our 007 book reviews that Josh and I produced on the Fleming novels just a couple of years ago. Now, this episode here shares some discussion on A View to a Kill, Thunderball, and Octopussy as well as a short bit about Fleming's last year and his death. Well, we decided to put the bio stuff about his death here because Octopussy and the Living Daylights was a posthumous collection of short fiction, so it's really as good here as anywhere. And Josh did some nice work on it, so we thought we'd cheer. Now, the, just just a reminder that when we reviewed the books, Josh and I scored each story out of 25, and we used the acronym ANGLE to represent the features that we scored, up to five marks each for allies and adversaries. Narrative, Girls, Locations, and Equipment. Now in the case of Octopussy and A View to a Kill, both of which are short stories, we've included our full discussions here in this bonus episode, but for Thunderball, I've cut a little bit more than an hour of content that we think you'll like. Now, Some of the audio might be a little bit ropey in places, and we just blame that on the transatlantic cable, but really it only lasts for a couple of seconds, so it's not a big deal anyway thanks again for listening downloading and sharing your thoughts get in touch spread the word if you like what we do you can follow us on twitter facebook or email us at bombinumbers three at gmail.com give us a good review and we'll send you out some merchandise and call you up on the show you can choose between a fancy show branded coffee mug or a show branded coffee mug Just a reminder that the roulette has served us up from Russia with love for our next film, and we are very much looking forward to rolling with you through that discussion next week. It is shaping up to be a very good one in these early stages. So yeah, thanks again for spreading the word about the show, and for checking out this literary gun barrel episode. We really do appreciate the support. On behalf of Josh, Jeff, and myself, we hope that you enjoy this bonus tie-in that covers the films that we've recently reviewed. Enjoy!
1: View to a Kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, From a View to a Kill. The first um, title, uh, the first uh, story uh, here in the Free Rise Only collection. So, on his way back to England after Bosch mission in Austria, Bond is relaxing and holding his long-standing grudge against the city of Paris when he is called up by the local Section FMI 6 Division at M's request. Bond's assignment is to investigate the murder of a shape, uh, which is basically a... Um, Do you want to to talk about SHAPE for a bit there, Scott, just to explain? Yeah,
0: sure. SHAPE uh, stands for, it's an acronym that stands for the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers of Europe, which is kind of like uh, an intelligence UN for the European continent.
1: That's right. Uh, So he's there to investigate the murder of a SHAPE courier, a signals officer who was transporting secret documents from SHAPE headquarters in Versailles uh, to Section F in Paris. The officer, traveling by motorbike, was overtaken and executed. His watch was stolen, as were the top-secret documents he was carrying in his carrier bag. And though uh, Schreiber, the nonsense American head of shape, has confirmed that all avenues to the investigation have been exhausted and wants Bond to take a stab at it by seeing the invisible element, as he, as he puts it. Bond is able to find out the method and hiding place of the assassin. Putting his theory to the test without the faith of the Shape Commander and the worries of MI6 colleague Marianne Russell, Bond intercepts the assassin and finds a KGB bolt hole and flushes them out. That's, that's, that's the, that's the, that's, the, I, I, in, in, in any way, I, I can't summarize it better than that, I don't think.
0: No, I think that was pretty good, man. And you did a sound job of summarizing it. I mean, that's really quick for you. Well done.
1: You can, you can teach an old dog some new tricks.
0: Well, I kind of wish that I had my uh, noisemaker here because I'd give you a round of applause. So instead, you're just going to have to accept my compliment. Well done.
1: I wanted a, a, uh, like a Roman triumph, to be honest with you, but that's okay. Well, you know, we don't have the kind
0: of time or the real estate.
1: I want that slave, you know, to keep me down from reaching your level of pride saying, thou art only a man, you know, holding that dead skull next to you, right? You, thou art only a man, thou art only a man, but oh well.
0: Oh well. Uh, right, Josh. Um, this, as you've already said, is a little different to James Bond that we've seen before. This is Bond very much in a detective mode, looking, yes. to, looking to find the murder, as you said, of this, of this dude on the motorcycle. Um, I, do you like Detective Bond or do you like Action Bond?
1: I kind of like Detective Bond. I, I find Detective Bond is what more Fleming writes more so than Action Bond, to be honest. And even on the film versions, I prefer the, the 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 detective bond. I guess because I'm always been like a Sherlock Holmes fan and, and a Batman fan that I've always liked the detective work, you know, that goes into these stories. All right, cool, cool. And I don't, I find that like these these more like stories like Risico and From a View to a Kill in particular. These stories are very much reminding me of like those short stories, uh, the collection of stories that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Did for Sherlock Holmes. It's almost like Bond has now reached this level of an iconic kind of character where he gets his whole collection of short stories of little adventures. And I mm-hmm. kind of like reading Bond in, in, in little douses like this. It's almost like you're getting like those opening teasers in a little more detail, you know, before the Bond title song comes on.
0: Well, it's certainly a good time in the series to have uh, short stories. Uh, it was a welcome break. I'll say that. I, I don't think that, I don't think if Bond was Estab- was <clears throat> let me try that again. If Bond's character hadn't been established, I don't think these would have come off.
1: Oh, absolutely not. I mean, one hundred percent. But I mean, he had established him in the future-length novels, and there was more of demand for him. And for whatever reason, nineteen sixty, maybe because he was helping working on the adaptation of Doctor No, mm. it's quite possible um, that he just didn't want to have a full-length story on on, on the present moment. You know.
0: Could be, yeah, yeah. If what you say is true, you could be right.
1: Yeah, I think it's possible.
0: Anyway, I mean, what? So, are you telling me you, you, that you do like the story of From a View to a Kill? You think it's clever? Like, I mean, what do you make of of the whole shape uh, organization and the way? Uh, because I guess we should say, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself now. I'm asking too much, but basically, M is not unlike um, Judy Dench's M in Golden Eye desperately fighting against the changes and is needing to justify the special, um, what's the word? Um, the special
1: <laughs> div, special, div, div, division. Yeah, um, and the not, division. And but something I, that hasn't been absorbed into the SHAPE organization, basically.
0: Yes, I guess so. I mean... It's not so much an allowance, but the license to kill that the 00 agents have is something that people feel is probably not necessary in this time. And SHAPE certainly do. And I think M is feeling as though Bond needs to validate the, their, their work a little bit. Yeah, yeah to,
1: to validate their existence, exactly. So instead of them becoming assimilated by the greater NATO powers in, in that way.
0: And it is fun to see M in this story, kind of chewing his jaw a little bit about about an issue. And he admires Bond, and I mean, he, he tells Bond that he wants him to to do this because he's, he he has this ability to see an invisible factor in a case, right? And and he thinks right. he thinks that it it might help overall. I mean, I'll I'll just read a little bit of, uh, from that, just a paragraph or so right. of where M is explaining the purpose of that. Um, so basically, he says. Uh, Um, Well, this is the head of F in in Paris telling Bond what... What page for our viewers at home? Well, I'm on page 16 in my edition, but yours wouldn't be that. Um, Paragraph beginning, head of F smiled sympathetically.
1: Head of F smiled sympathetically.
0: Matter of fact, I put much the same point of view to M over the scrambler. Tactfully, the old man was quite reasonable. Said he wanted to show shape. He was taking the business just as serious as they were. You happened to be available and more or less on the spot, and he said you had the sort of mind that might pick up the invisible factor. I asked him what he meant, and he said that at all closely guarded headquarters, there's bound to be an invisible man, a man everyone takes so much for granted that he just isn't noticed. Gardener, window cleaner, postman. I said that Shape had thought of that, and that all those sorts of jobs were done by enlisted men. M told me not to be so literal-minded and hung up. Bond laughed. He could see M's frown and hear the crusty voice. He said, all right then, I'll see what I can do. So yeah, there's that sort of, that idea that not for the first time recently, M is giving Bond a mission of um, maybe not incredible importance uh, on the world stage, but to kind of cover their own asses and justify their own you know, existence, as you say.
1: It's a matter of pride in, in, yeah. that, kind of, in that context. And this isn't, the first time, this isn't the first moment in this collection of stories that Where you see where we see M kind of use the Secret Service as his own sort of uh, getting things done apparatus, I guess Hmm. you describe it.
0: Yeah, and we learn here in this story, don't we, that um, Bond lost his virginity in Paris. Yes.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed the sequences in Paris uh, in this particular novel, and I really wanted to have see what his Holden Caulfield-esque adventures were like in Paris at the time. I think that would have been really interesting. yeah, I just I just love the whole like um, uh, hatred of Paris. It's it's quite hilarious actually. Um, going, let's just go to here to page six in my book here, uh, just where Bond is talking about Paris and uh, yeah, he would he's talking about how when he's in Paris, uh, the night that he planned for himself to have, and there's just it's just dripping with such disdain and uh, and and boredom and uh, sarcasm here. Um, he would, he would somehow find himself a girl who was a real girl, and he would take her to a dinner at some make-believe place in the Bois like the armenonville to clean the money look out of her eyes, for it would certainly be there. He would as soon as possible give her 50,000 francs. He would say to her, I propose to call you Don- Donatienne, or possibly Solange, because these are names that suit my mood in the evening. We knew each other before, and you lent me this money because I was in the jam. Here it is, and now we will, we will tell each other what we have been doing since we last met in St. Trapez just a year ago. In the meantime, here is the menu and the wine list, and you must choose what will make you happy and fat. And she would look relieved at not having to try anymore, and she would laugh and say, But James, I do not want to be fat. And there would be started on the myth of Paris in the spring. And Bon would say sober and be interested in her and everything she said. And by God, by the end of the evening, it would not be his fault if it transpired that there was, in fact, no shred of stuffing left in the hoary old fairy tale of a good time in Paris. <laughs> I mean, this
0: is thinly veiled author's contempt.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> I mean, we, we've got to see, as you said in your introduction, that For Your Eyes Only, in some ways, is peeking through the blinds at how Fleming feels about different things in different places and different people. And this is the first, and certainly not the last, time we're going to see that.
1: Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Like, we can tell in Risico that he loves Venice, uh, we can tell in the uh, Hillman brand. Rudy, that he does have a compassion uh, a great compassion in him as well
0: right. well I do like some of these touches that you're you're describing Paris is cool it's nicely described um, I like as I've already said you know bond uh, learning how M feels about the case through the head of station F uh, wing Commander uh, Rattray I mean how do you feel about his character the guy who in shape bond has to report to
1: he seems like an all- right guy he seems like he's he's dug into the earth where where he is, so he's not really going to. I, I never saw him as much of a more of a, just just a pass along ch- ch- character from uh, from for, for Bond over to sh- sh- uh sh- Schreiber at, sh- at Shape.
0: Hmm. Well,
1: Schreiber <laughs> Schreiber? I don't know.
0: Yeah, Lee Schreiber. I think that's it. I I mean I, I've got a problem with this story, and I'm I'm enjoying listening to you talk about it because I can I can sense your enthusiasm. But I got to be honest with you, like. For me, uh, From a View to a Kill was, partic- with, with the exception of the climax, I found it, and maybe the opening, um, very dull, very boring. Like, Fleming shows us how bored Bond is, and it's not just in Paris until he gets a little excited when um, uh, Marianne Russell drives up and, and collects him for his job, but he's kind of bored throughout most of the detective work as well, and... I mean, he's investigating dead ends, right? He's talking to people who don't particularly rate him in shape. And he just kind of goes from bit to bit. And I don't know, like, I, I, I wonder if Fleming is, was a little bored about or bored of James Bond when he was writing this story. However, I will give, I will give over to the possibility that maybe this is Fleming um, offering us a mundane story to tag the red tape that goes along with these types of organizations in shape. And if that's the case, then he was writing a story that reflected um, post-World War II Cold that's how War. how I kind of
1: felt about it. Yeah. I'm not as enthusiastic as you think I am about this story. I think it's one of my least favorite stories in the collection, actually. Oh, it's right. a very formulaic kind of story. But I will offer this. If this, was an ep- if this was a one-hour episode of TV, I think it would be pretty a- exciting. You know, like, you're sitting down, like, imagine, like, in the 1960s, you're watching the James Bond TV series, like, as if you're watching The Saint or The Avengers or something like that. And this would be a good little hour of, of adventure, you know? Like, you could just imagine, like, the guest stars, you know, like, a young mm-hmm. Julian Glover as, like, the signal officer, as the, as the KGB uh, b- biker. Oh, yeah. You could picture some one of those classic old uh, American actors, like, uh, I don't know, the guy from combat or something as Schreiber treating Bond like crap you know like so i i just kind of think that this is exactly how you should do the story that this is 100% a streamlined script basically and it's, it's it is devoid of a lot of character uh, parts except for that that, that 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 with a good climax but to me a very promising start in Paris it just doesn't really go anywhere you know
0: well, yeah it, it's a promising start I, I like the beginning I like the end I just think that the, the it's very meandering the middle of this story is just kind of uh, it's it's just all how procedural espionage work can be and okay I get that but I don't also need, I don't need 40 pages of it
1: yeah, it's very kind of lost a lot of like those Sherlock Holmes stories too, where not all of them were great either, Scott. And this is to me like just another example of the of the narrative basically making the hero awesome and then making everyone look stupid around him. And that to me takes kind of the suspense out of it a, a, a little bit. Bomb was a bit too perfect in this whole uh, storyline, in my opinion.
0: That's a good observation. Um, and I agree with that now that you've said it. He does basically make everyone else around him look stupid. And the only time that we don't like Bond is when he's musing about French restaurants. And that's the only time that we're meant to see that he is in, you know, a flawed character.
1: Yes. Hmm. Yeah, okay. What, well, um, well, why don't, what, why don't, sorry, go ahead. I was going to point out too, is I, I just, you know, just as, as an aside here, I learned that um, Macaro... Uh, is, the Spanish, is the French name for a pimp, also reference to the fish, a mackerel, and mm-hmm. and that, is that where they get the term where if someone's macking on someone is from from mackerel? I wonder, or I'm just curious. It could
0: it could be macking on. Yeah, you could be onto something. The etymology of that expression. Why don't you yeah. do a little bit more work onto that and report back?
1: Yeah. I I usually wanted more of this, of like the Catcher in the Rye like story with Bond as a teenager in Paris and the whole Uh, night. That sounded really exciting. I kind of wish it was, it was juxtaposed. The whole short story would have been really more inventive if Bond going on this mission, on this mission juxtaposed against, you know, losing his virginity, you know, like I think that (laughs) would have been a
0: really interesting story. It would be interesting. I don't think it would be a better story, but I, I think it would be more entertaining.
1: Yeah, more entertaining would be sure. So, um, let's, let's, so let's get our angle on from, okay. from from a view to a kill. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, let, let's do that. Okay. So um, I'll I'll go first. Uh, or do you want to do category by category?
1: We'll do category by category.
0: Okay. Well, let's start with uh, a the adversaries and allies of the story. For me, like, as I've already said, the enemies are faceless, um, pretty they're, they're they're nameless. The allies, everyone we meet anyway, are pencil pushers. They're boring and they're bored with Bond. Um, Marianne Russell, the girl, the, 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 she's a token. She's a serviceable liaison, but she's not developed enough really to be anything more. And None he, of these
1: characters are. That's the whole thing with character as a whole. These characters are not yeah. developed enough to get any sense of them. And I don't buy that it's a short story, so
0: we have to give a little bit of leeway here. I mean, I've read a lot of short no. fiction that develops things a little bit better than this one.
1: I, 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 I agree with you there. I might have been a little bit generous in the, in the allies. Uh, I found the disguised Soviet biker... Um, I like kind of like how he was young, given the, how the murder signal of officer was brief excitement about seeing him. Yes. Um, he had, with lots to prove, like how he affirms that by stealing the watch, he's like a pro now. Like, I kind of liked that. And I also liked how Bond basically picks that out right away. Um, well, that's that the, invisible it, that it wasn't a highway robbery. And you can see that he wants to, he has a lot to prove to the motherland, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, his compatriots were not fleshed out at all. They were crafty, though. And I like the idea with their gypsy disguises. More of just a, a flourish that, that uh, Fleming added more so than anything about their characters.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, Marianne what... Russell, also the girl, just yes. seems efficient enough in the field. I kind of agree with you there. Combat is another story, kind of a warrior turns back into the, into the typical. Uh, it's Fleming building up a female character and then tearing her down again, as usual. Um, but with minimal, even more or less development, um, when commander Rattray, uh, he's a typical kind of bureaucrat type kind of guy. Um, uh, it seems too stuck in his position to, you know, might've might had some old glory before. We know he smokes a lot of cigarettes that so he's a bit fat, uh, overweight, I should say. Um, and uh, another example of, the, of this, of the decadence, I guess, of Paris, you know, and, and Bond's disdain for it. Uh, schreiber of course uh he wasn't really an ally i kind of liked his character though i like how i liked i liked the tete-a-tete that him and bond kind of had you know and i could visualize that very well mm-hmm. and i think like in a scripted tv version i think that antagonism would play off really well on the screen um i did like bond and the french uh shape q9 K- unit those guys seem those, those two seem to work together p- pretty well and, you know, they're talking about the dogs and all this kind of stuff. So, Bonds seemed to have a bit of a camaraderie with that guy and some members of the team who were helping him on the search.
0: I think, so, okay, fine. But I think you're really digging down, man. You're dredging the barrel for those guys.
1: I really, really am. So, I'm going to i, I I'm gonna go with like 3.5, I think, on the adversary and allies.
0: Okay. Uh, you went 3.5. I went 2.5.
1: All right. Fair so enough. That's fine.
0: Um, I went 2.5. You went 3.5. Uh, In terms of the narrative, Josh, um, real quick, like we've already discussed, nice touches. I like the whole backstory of Bond, but as you were saying, we don't get any more of these, we don't really get any more of the musings or the vignettes about why he dislikes. It's just kind of snobbishness. And I know that's part of the character, but the storytelling itself is pretty meandering here. It's dull, just little flashes of excitement. Um, Fleming seems bored of this character. That's exactly how he feels writing him here. and. A lot of that thinly veiled opinion, I don't care much for. It's transparent. It's clumsy. The foreshadowing in the story is also pretty clumsy. Um, and I mean, that's me speaking, I guess, in my own little, um, well, I don't know if that's if, if that's snobby in its own way, but I, I found it clunky. I, I, I knew when it was coming, and I knew that it would be uh, grass Yeah, thank you for that. And it reflected a laziness to me in the writing. Um, foreshadowing in the Bond books is usually really good and we're going to see how Fleming's style is completely alive in a different story where he uses misdirection more appropriately but but,
1: what what, what part of the story would you say is I I, I guess because again it was a pretty straightforward formulaic read that I wasn't really looking for any flourishes in there at all but what part of uh, um, for example uh, what passage indicates like a foreshadowing
0: Um, Well, okay, let's talk about where Bond is touted as being the one who can find the invisible factor. And then at the the bottom of that that particular page, Bond says, as he walked along, or Fleming writes, as he walked along the neutral painted, neutral smelling corridors, he reflected that this was probably the most hopeless assignment he'd ever been on. If the top security brains of 14 countries were stumped, what hope had he got? And blah,
1: blah, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah, I guess it's not really, I guess it's foreshadowing a little bit, I suppose, but also, again... It, it, it kind of just justifies my position that this is basically like this formulaic Sherlock Holmes story where the main character sees all the clues and everyone else who who are, should be efficient in their field uh, due to because plot um, are, are stupid, right? So Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, plot it's... dumb, as TV Tropes calls it. Plot dumb.
0: For those reasons, I gave the narrative a three.
1: I went three point five. I liked the uh, the in, the ingenuity of the the villains in, in, in the forest and everything. And uh, there was parts of the story that I did like with the par- with the par- with the Paris elements. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So I gave it three point five. I'm oh. sticking with that.
0: Okay. Uh, as for the girls, Marianne Russell is the only girl we get here. She's attractive. Um, she's kind of fun at the beginning. Uh, she's yeah. not she's not particularly engaging. And she's likable though. She's likable, but she's and played- she
1: doesn't she doesn't seem incompetent. But her worrying and fretting over Bond, and she's kind of like a prize at the end of the storyline.
0: Correct. Yeah. And it's, it's just... pretty – when she's introduced, she's very bored as well. And she complains that she has a sore butt from all the pinches from the Frenchman. Like that's kind of – I don't know. Like she, she's nothing we're supposed to take seriously.
1: Well, that and I think it's a veiled – it's another thing of – it's a Fleming veiled just showing a bunch of that. Parisians are and, mm-hmm. and Frenchmen are, are, perverts. Are, are perverts, lascivious assholes, basically. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I um for the girls here, I went three. Uh, it's a middling score from me. Uh, maybe a little more generous than she's worth, but I thought Marianne Russell could have been interesting if we got to see her in a less secretarial role and a little bit more action. She, like she could have gone out and done one of these things with Bond, done a recce with him, you know?
1: I I, I definitely agree. I think Fleming captured her to the side a bit too much to make her stand out. Uh, to make her stand out more than she could have. So I'm with you. I'm a three with with the girl. Okay. In terms of locations, well, we got the Paris
0: restaurants at the beginning. We've got Versailles, uh, the tree-lined roads, which are very nicely described. Um, yeah, barracks and the offices of the shape headquarters. Uh, you know, and obviously the clearing in the woods where the <clears throat> where the, the first the gypsies or the agents were, and then how that kind of rose. Bush opens up and the periscope and all that stuff. The locations are okay. Um, nothing, uh, phenom- nothing phenomenal. I didn't think. I went three point
1: five. I went four point five. I think this was the strongest part of the whole storyline was the feeling of location. This is what Fleming to me does that does the best in his writing. Right. He really captures. He captured Paris to me. It feels alive in memory and the present day of the narrative. Um, his descriptions of the cafe, the traffic, the various restaurants and bars, the Champel, La Ronde. All very vivid, in my opinion. Uh, the shape headquarters in Versailles with its modern architecture, glass doors, those lights turning on, brightening up like 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 the day from night to day. You know, like in the parking lot when Bond pulls in, um, everything's just so sterile and so NATO-ish there. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, the whole ride from Versailles uh, to Station F through Saint Germain's Forest, I can just visualize. You know that whole sequence so well. So I'm. Not, I think location was the most was the best part of the story for in this
0: regard okay cool well um to equipment for me equipment i gave a 3.5 i thought it was quite clever some of the intelligence instruments used particularly from the soviets the rose stem periscope bush which marked yeah. the entrance to the surveillance layer i really like the touch with the snowshoes to avoid the imprint i mean it's it's a really basic piece but i think it's important that that's just you know yeah
1: I like, the, I like the fact these guys were basically disguised as gypsies and they're underground this entire time and yeah they, you got to imagine what kind of living conditions they have under there where this guy can get back in a clean officer's uniform get on the bike and pull back out I just really liked their guerrilla war tactics that they were they were using yeah. I thought that was really inventive and uh, clever on Fleming's part so I was really big on equipment I liked how two how the, he had like a the uh, the uh, the assassin had like a clip for his Luger on the petrol tank.
0: So he can equip it
1: and use it. Yeah, that was that was that was really yeah. well done. And Bond well, didn't really use any any uh the camo suit was kind of cool. I, I I was cool seeing Bond doing the camo stuff, you know. So yeah. I, I like that aspect. And you could feel some of the wartime operations that he might have done are, mm-hmm. are 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 you know are on display here. So I thought equipment was another strong part of the story. So I was a little bit more generous. I was a four with equipment.
0: Okay, cool. I mean, there are also some nice descriptions and details of the motorcycles. You know, the BSA M twenty and the D ninety eight. That yeah, flaunt. the motorcycles. Too, yeah, that's
1: right. The BSA.
0: So there was some cool stuff there, but uh, for me, generally, it was a fifteen point five and a twenty five. Nothing to really write home about.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, a beautiful my... yeah score i didn't total my scores for each one i just did the scoring for each one you're 18, <laughs> you're 18.5 okay i figured that you would be doing that okay 18.5 okay very good all right I guess i j- i enjoyed this little i guess i just enjoyed the actiony feel of this story like i could of when i read that this was sort of like a supposed to be a tv script mm-hmm. that makes i think that's why i why I, why i think i enjoyed it a lot more in the sense that like it was the visualization of the elements for me and it was just a fun read on the back deck drinking my beer so I yeah. guess I wasn't. I might have been a bit more. I might have been maybe a bit too more enthusiastic with this story compared to the other ones. Well, but maybe, uh,
0: maybe not. I mean, it's if, if something in it you like, man. You know, you've justified it well. It's just uh, we had different opinions.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. As we always do. Yeah. But uh-huh. Life right. would be boring without opinions. It would.
0: March 1961 um, 50,938 copies sold out quite quickly this is actually uh, a better selling book in the United States than any other of the previous Bond novels
1: mm. Mm. Go I fake. wonder if that has to do with the, the kind of the, the very taut kind of thriller story
0: yeah might be it might be um, and, and a lot of heavy American involvement too you know but uh, yeah, so Jonathan Cape really pushed the promotion of this one. Um, there was seventy-five thousand dollars in today's money that uh, went out to promote this book. Uh, one hundred and thirty copies to reviewers for critics. And speaking of critics, we've got some of our old friends here, uh, and I've written down. What's
1: Boucher up to? What's he up to? Did he burn it in a bonfire?
0: We'll see. We'll get to Boucher. Uh, in the name
1: of, uh, in the name of classical narrative and. Uh,
0: well, I can, okay. Do you want me to? Do you want me to start with Boucher, or should I wait? I think we will go Boucher
1: to last. But I think you know, okay. I think he, I think always the crown prince of criticism when it comes to films.
0: So. <laughs> okay. Well, here we go. We'll start with uh, the Guardian newspaper, and uh, Francis Isles writes this: "It's a good, tough, straightforward thriller on perfectly conventional lines." Hmm.
1: It's-
0: yeah, well, that
1: is a good. That is a good. A good assessment. It's all. It's kind of something you could look at in, uh, kind of a. Uh, I guess a lot. A kind of a slappy. What's what's the term? I'm. I'm. I'm a kind of a backhanded compliment, compliment but at yeah. the same time, it's also a a, a very good. Uh, what's the word? It's a very good uh, indi- indicator that it's a. You know, that it's a really good popular thriller. Mm-hmm. You know, by popular I'm talking about popular in the sense of you know everyone loves it it's more of about like it's easy it was a little... that was real evolved the novel so far in my opinion, it's probably the most conventional in terms of uh, of what we expect from a spy story. perhaps nowadays and even probably back then too. yeah, I mean, it's cocking almost in in some aspects.
0: Kind of, but it also is eerily modern, and uh, I, I want to dig yes. some of that up too. Anyway, um Peter deval Smith writing in the Financial Times uh BFG, he says, an exciting story skillfully told with a romantic subplot and the denouement involves great events. The best written yeah. the best written since Diamonds Are Forever, according to the Financial Times. <laughs> Okay. Interesting. Philip Stead, writing in the Times Time Literary Supplement, says that stealing the bombs gives Bond some anxiety, but does not prevent him from having a good deal of fun in luxury surroundings.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll argue that later on, in uh-huh. my opinion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Mr. Fleming's magic lies in his power to impart sophistication to his mighty nonsense. His fantasies connect with up-to-date and lively knowledge of places and the general sphere of crime and espionage. Now, when you and I were talking about uh, why, in God's name, Fleming brought into his Dr. No a giant kraken, um, we quoted the author at the time who said something akin to this, that my plots may be improbable but they're not impossible and this comment by philip stead the idea of his magic lying in his power to impart sophistication to nonsense kind of sounds of the same thing
1: absolutely but i would say Thunderball is a much more realistic story than dr no (laughs) yes so (laughs) so would
0: i i just mean you know some of the conventions uh at work here are quite creative
1: Oh, um, absolutely! There, there, there's some really. In, there's we get into the equipment part of the angle. I want to talk about some of just the ingenuity and in the narrative and the equipment aspect of the storyline as well.
0: Okay, so New York Times Charles Poor writes: Post Dostoy Dostoevskian ventures. <laughs> Sorry, man, I can never get wow. Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Post Dostoevsky adventures in *Crime and Punishment*: a mystery story, a thriller, a chiller, and a pleasure to read. Praise is given. He, he gets praise for the, quote, conceits which help decorate his tapestry of thieving and deceiving.
1: Downbite. Holy mackerel.
0: <laughs> no, I know. That's a big boner of a... Uh...
1: That was a fanboy review right there.
0: <laughs> well, don't worry. Here comes Boucher. <laughs>
1: of course. Of course.
0: Writing in the Sunday Times, Anthony Boucher, quote, as usual, Fleming has less story to tell in 90,000 words than Buchan managed in 40,000. But Thunderball is still an extravagant adventure. End quote.
1: Wow, mm, it's very soft. Very soft. Yeah. See, this is the thing. I think it's this. It's the modern uh, thriller aspect to Thunderball that I think makes it a straightforward story more so than some of other Fleming's uh, novels that we have that we've encountered.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But
1: I think when we get in the narrative, we can take a look at some of the similar tropes that we've noticed so far in the narrative structure of a Fleming novel do appear in this one, cool. a small degree, but they do appear.
0: Uh, Indeed they do. Listen, I got one one last note about the publication and then I want you to slide quickly through your plot summary here. Um, I just wanted to say that, uh, and this was an interesting point, um, the illustrator for Fleming's Hardback's uh, apart from the few that he designed himself at the beginning. Uh, oh, yeah, here he is.
1: Chopping or something like that? Or? Yeah,
0: that's exactly it. Richard Chopping is his name. He illustrat- Chopping, that's right. He illustrated nine of Fleming's novels. Uh, from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, For Your Eyes Only, Thunderball, The Spy Who Loved Me, Her Majesty's Secret Service, You Only Live Twice, The Man with the Golden Gun, Octopussy, and Olivia Daylays. Now,
1: All very vivid, serviceable. Yeah. And- well... And- images and i think the thunderball one which i I took a peek at uh the other day i think it's uh it's interesting to talk about because
0: it's a great cover
1: it it is a great cover and it's interesting that it doesn't really display some of the storylines or or the visuals that we would think of in the narrative i thought they could have gone in a different direction with the cover but Mm -hmm. it worked at the same time so well it It, did
0: yeah it does work that you 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 know people listening of course they don't have a television or a, a clip here we've got this this kind of a playing card on the table you've got a a skeleton's hand down and a knife between the fingers it's quite it's quite it's quite sharp but um he chopping obviously had a close relationship with Fleming Fleming wrote to him um obviously trying to butter him up but he said the title of the book will be Thunderball it is immensely long immensely dull and only your jacket can save it I thought I, I, <laughs> I just like that little look into correspondence that you know an author has with his uh his supporting cast you know
1: Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of uh, that whole thing about um, Major Boothroyd writing in about the gut, you know, being a gun expert, and this like this fan saying, um like you know that like he's almost like the comic book guy from The Simpsons, going, uh "No, you may not. This this gun does not do this. It did not did not do this at all." So Fleming <laughs> basically named the character who we all know as Q after Boothroyd. Uh,
0: that's right, yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> it's almost like kind of like a knob at the same time and Fu <laughs> in the same at the same moment, yeah, you
0: know? Uh, well, there's your backhanded compliment. It's like.
1: more passive aggressiveness, I guess, in this regard, eh? Right, buddy.
0: Well, look, I, I figure that that's us ready to launch right into this plot summary
1: all right m's a little insecure about the performance of the double o division so he sends bond to shrublands a health spot in the english countryside while bond is here he encounters count lippy uh a mccowan i guess somewhat unofficial merchant prince there uh who is who is also staying at shrublands and bond has a sort of this vicious piss uh, pissy match with him, uh, <laughs> due to the fact that he deciphers the red tongue tattoo on um, Lippy's um, wrist when, uh, during a massage, uh, Lippy very adamantly refuses to take off the wa- off his watch. But when he does, this tattoo is exposed, and Bond notices it. So, of course, Bond, see, Megan uh, catches me- this catches his, his his memory. So he contacts you know headquarters to find out all about it, and Lippy hears it and then of course we get this pissy match between them back and forth which doesn't really have any huge relevance in the story not really but i just wanted to set up that lippy thing just because it's kind of important but not too important you know what i mean
0: yeah it is important and i think you're right
1: yeah as it turns out um not yet in bond's knowledge lippy is an agent of specter uh and a noble enterprise headed by a mastermind named ernst stavro blofeld blofeld has devised a plan with his number one agent whom he later learned uh, is an Italian named Emilio Largo, to start the NATO powers with two stolen atomic warheads. His warheads were pilfered by an Allied pilot um, bought, bought, bought up by them named Angelo Patacci. Now, Patacci will play a pivotal role in, in the climax of Thunderball. Um, Patacci is a trusted Allied pilot uh, during and after the war, even though he had his own little side businesses and Disguise the fact that he switched sides for pretty selfish reasons. He, did. Um, he really did. Um, but an interesting sketch of his character does appear in the in the in the in the, in the, in the, uh, in the novel, if a little bit short. Well, we get a full um, chapter of him. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it kind of creates a bit of a, a kind of a moral ambiguity uh, to the events in, uh, that lead that you know that lead in the climax as well, um, which the film version changes dramatically. By the way, it does. Uh, so this pilot, Pitachi, he managed to hijack a Vindicator. That's a fictional aircraft, by the way. Um, it's actually um, a, the one they use in the film is the Avro Vulcan. And But the Vindicator, how it was described and compared to the Avro Vulcan, they're very similar. So we'll just, we'll just think of, you know, basically it's four or five men in a kind of a modern 19, late 50s flying fortress carrying atomic war. That, that, that's pretty much it, right? Pretty much it. Yeah. So, he delivers his cargo, after killing the crew, to uh, Spectre. Blofeld, the head of Spectre, then contacts representative NATO governments, the US, UK, etc., and demands 100 million in bullion for the return of the warheads. Of course, if their terms are not met, the weapons will be detonated. So, there is that lingering threat, that anxiety, as uh, some of the critics were talking about. We learned that number one, Largo, has taken custody of the weapons after relieving Potacci from uh, the warheads, seizes them, and, they, and hiding the uh, Vindicator. Bond now in good health after his stay in Shrublands is called in for the crisis and is given the Bahamas due to the air traffic routes and trajectory the Vindicator may have taken. So based on what the Vindicator's flight pattern was when it was stolen, they all the agents are sent in to make sure they cover that entire, I guess, radius, right? So... Once arrived in NASA, he is able to deduce that a wealthy treasure hunter, Largo, has the vessel and the man and the manpower to possibly be suspect. As Spectre's main man for this, uh what they call Operation Thunderball. Bond makes headway into a large into Largo's society um, through his mistress, Dominetta Vitali, or Domino, and with the assistance of Felix Leiter, called back to active duty by the CIA, and a really grumpy Felix too, uh, the two agents team together to determine whether Largo and his crew aboard the disco volante uh a uh, really neat hydrofoil um slash yacht maybe the foes that they are looking for so that's the, basically the main premise of the story it's the setup premise i'm not going to go into the full details of, each bit of the plot i think when we, when we i think when we discuss it we can kind of f- fall upon those so spoilers ahead if you haven't read the book
0: spoilers ahead so we'll give you 15 minutes right now to go read and oh sorry 15 seconds right now to go read the book that should be enough time
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you're an Android or something like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's well done. That is the setup. Definitely. And that is, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's good, man. Very economic these days, you.
1: Well, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with the times.
0: (laughs) Are you? That's good.
1: I'm becoming a capitalist. What can I say? So moving forward, um, yeah. I think we should I think we should dive into the angle, and then we can kind of look at each aspect of the angle in in detail. What do you okay.
0: think? Okay, yeah, that's that's cool. I'm I'm quite happy with that. Um, I I just think that maybe the last little bit of um, <clears throat> the plot summary, um, you got to set up to, you know, Largo being the bad guy, and obviously he hid the the bombs that uh, came from the hijacking and all that stuff, but uh, just Finish it off. Um, tell tell our listeners what happens at the end.
1: Well, uh, um, so as we've said it before, spoilers alert. So Bond uses Domino, um, his mistress, uh, sort Largo's mistress, to determine uh, to. Well, no, the sequence of, the sequence of events is this: uh, once Felix and Bond manage to find the uh, the Vindicator aircraft. Uh, with the missing bombs. um, There's some pretty good detective work on their part. And um, so this leads to finding the body of Angelo Pitacci and uh, knowing that this is the brother of Domino. So this leads to Bond bringing to Domino this information and learning that Largo has betrayed her and it was just simply keeping her as his mistress. And this goes into the final act of the film where... Once they realize that it is Largo uh, that does have that does have the bombs and they need to bring him down and they're going to um, detonate the first warhead warhead at one, at one of the uh, Bahaman islands, Bahamian Islands. Uh, this leads to uh, Leiter and Bond joining the crew of the Manta, an American atomic submarine, and staging an assault on, on um, Largo and his men uh that pretty much climaxes with a pretty epic fight um the film version did justice to that in my opinion uh but the added addition i really liked in the story is the fact that domino um even though you know she's wounded emotionally physically uh she managed despite being tortured by largo she and him just and him just leaving her tied up she manages to get to escape and dive down in the middle of the battle, saving Bond from Largo with a nice harpoon. And I found that was a lot more dramatic and more powerful in the in the novel version than it was in the film, in my in, in my opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and basically and- that's that's it, isn't it? Um, the only the only thing that I would say you neglected to 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 mention is that Felix Leiter. Uh, comes back into the scene, and he, uh, well, I, you did, I mentioned
1: Felix. Yeah. I mentioned him. Yeah, yeah.
0: You did mention that he was angrier in this novel, but he comes back into the scene, and really, for probably the first time in their relationship, he's with Bond for almost the majority of the time he's in Nassau.
1: He is there, but did you also feel that there was a bit of a, a strain uh, between their, in, in, in their characters? Not like a, a now, it's, it's nothing to you know to burst the bromance that they have they have going there, but. He sees how Felix, because I guess he's more sedentary than he was before, not working with the CIA, just doing Pinkerton work. How he's just kind of just noticed Felix is just noticing how American society is going down the tubes. He's just bitching about you know money and uh, all this kind of stuff, like Gran Torino, like get off my lawn, kids. You know what I mean? So, kind,
0: kind of, but I, I don't know. We might disagree with this. But he's because... also a
1: bit. He's a bit bitter too. obviously uh, is my point. Like mm. the whole thing about him, like being really angry that he couldn't really. Participate in the best possible way in the big battle at the end, and he had to be kind of saved by Bond in that regard, right? And he just like, yeah, man, just just leave me alone. I'll take care of myself. Just go back down there and get them, you know. So yeah,
0: I guess he did yes. his best.
1: He did his best, you know, given his. I don't want to use the word disability, but you know, in that context, uh, I found it was a very interesting characterization and. Um I really it's really sad that The Felix in the Novels is missing on screen in my opinion.
0: Yes, it's very sad. Um but I I don't know we we might disagree a bit here. I did I did obviously notice the curmudgeon-y side of him a little bit more in this novel, but I, I think he plays that out with humor as he did in the past. And I think he was. that um... he, he,
1: he, but he was bitter. Yeah, there was an, there was yeah, an there acidic, was, yeah, yeah, there was yeah, yeah, there was an acidic wit to him. But at the same time, he, him and Bond were still a great team. And once he realized that Bond was onto something, because even Bond was skeptical of the whole Largo thing. And you got to look at it in the context is is that we as a readers, kind of like in a Hitchcock film, we have more information than the, the main characters do. You know, so it's up to us to uh, kind of pull ourselves back and realize that Bond, and even though they're even though it's Bond and Lighter are are doing this detective story, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're following the cases. The story they're following the the evidence that will lead them to the conclusion um, that Largo is the guy that they're looking for. But we have they have to get to that point. And I kind of like the give and take of their relationship as they go along. You know, like. Bond is going okay, Felix. Yeah, I get it. They're overpriced. Whatever, you know. Yeah,
0: but I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna, <clears throat> I'm gonna step in here and defend Lighter, not just because I like his character, and I know I'm not, I'm not that not I know dissing, you're not. Like, I'm not
1: dissing Lighter. I found it was just a fun reflection of his personality. I just yeah, think but, it, it,
0: okay, I'm, not, I'm gonna defend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna contrast what you're saying because for okay. me, for me, and disagree is not the right word, but for me, um, I think that he's at his most intelligent in this book. He, he has this, he has this plan understood before bond does he he knows he makes a couple of hunches they turn out to be right and i think i think that the fact that he's brought back in by the cia gives him uh, gives him a jump on life i mean i cannot imagine that the felix lighter working for pinkertons and diamonds are forever is even going to put a fucking scuba gear and scuba tank on his back and dive into the the caribbean you know,
1: it, it's true i mean we we do see that the bitterness in him, I guess, because of his sedentary life. But once he gets back into it, you know, like, and once he realizes that they are onto something, he definitely has kind of a a, a one eighty degree turn from where he started out when he first joined Bond. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's bitter about not being able to get as many chicks as he used to be. But and and he's yeah. very, he is, he's very nasty to the waiter at the at the, the dinner that they have.
1: He he was yeah about
0: drinks, uh, particular the bartender. Sorry, particularly. Yeah.
1: I kind of like that sort of um, body comment he also made, too, when they're flying over, which is from the film version, of course, when they're flying over about the uh, natural blonde. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that is funny. Um, Anyway. Right. Okay. well, I guess this is us talking about the A of our angle, the uh, allies and adversaries. I think lighter is great. I, I really like M and I want to draw on one thing about M here. I know that we both like M anyway, and so we're kind of repeating ourselves from the other seven or eight books where we talk about the father relationship and, and Bond is kind of petulant at having to be. But d- it's in everyone,
1: to- so we gotta talk about
0: it. It's in everyone, but um one of the things I like about M here is that, you know, his interference and his old man or his mothering of Bond has got him so bent out of shape at first, right? But Then he comes back after Shrublands and he has such a, this is M, I mean, sorry, he has such a deft shot in the dark about where this plane has gone down and everybody else is looking all over Europe for major targets. He just thinks it's gone to the Caribbean because of the way it went off map and blah, blah, blah. He thinks it, it went south and that hunch, and he sends his best man down there on a hunch with only like, what, 40 hours or something like that, or 70 hours. It proves to be so professional and exact and... For us as readers, I think it shows him as being a really deserving, respected kind of leader, and it kind of yes. just—it kind of—it brings Bond back onto side with his boss in a way that he doesn't challenge him, and and it almost justifies his sending him away for a clean bill of health because in this mission, Bond is going to need to be more physical than he has in many others.
1: Oh, absolutely, that's definitely true. So I like and... M. I
0: like what Fleming's done with M here.
1: I like how, like in the in the novel version, that he gave M the agency of being the one to figure out to go to the Car- the, the Caribbean. You know, it wasn't yeah. Bond. Fi- it wasn't Bond figuring it out.
0: Okay, cool. So who else do we got? Adversary, or sorry, ally wise. We've got Commander Peterson of the sub. The um, <clears throat> the sub. Great of- character.
1: Yeah. Great, great little sketch for that guy. He I is thought, cool. I thought, he is cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, we've got May, the housekeeper, in her first actual speaking roles, and I really like her. She's cool. Yeah. Oh, uh, it- <laughs> What do you think yeah, about her? I thought spoke spoke in for Usher of Love, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, did she? Maybe she did, man. Sorry.
1: Because she talked about, like, the the next-door neighbors coming to the house or something. Or, oh, or yes, the, you're the, right. uh, the, yes, you're right. The TV repairman coming to the house, right? Yeah. And Bond thinking that they might be Smurfs agents because he was so bored of of, of, of the, the bureaucratic uh, doldrums that he was stuck in prior to that mission.
0: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. But um... – I think it's a cute chapter that, that she's given. And Fleming does give her a little bit of longitude here because um she comes into the, the start and Bond is recovering, obviously, and he's eaten what she deems to be shit, right? Because it's all this kind of egg shakes and uh, you know, vegetables and all this type of nonsense and carrot juice. Yes. And she's she thinks that until he gets back onto the grease and, and the good Scottish cooking, that um he's he's not he's not gonna be fit for service. And she's given him all kinds of chat like this and She's, and she, she knows. also knows
1: what what he does too. Yeah, she does. Well, or, or she cool. has an inkling, of, an inkling. Of, of of what he does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so she, yeah, she's she's fun. Uh, we got the guy in the spa, Joshua Wayne, who's kind of the health food director of the place, and. Uh, seems Patricia. like a bit of
1: a uh, a pretentious kind of like uh, does, but harm, Atkins harmless. diet Atkins diet Dr. Oz kind of type you know
0: Yeah but he's harmless and we got Patricia oh, Patricia Fearing, uh who's the sexy chick that Bond ends up and it's really quite oh it, it's uh their dalliance is funny um because he says that one of the things he's going to do is go have a big meal and he's going to take her and uh, have some business with her. And anyway, on the day after James Bond had completed his nature cure and had left for London after the night before, scoring a most satisfactory left and right of spaghetti bolognese and Chianti at Lucien's in Brighton and of Miss Patricia Fearing on the squab seats from her bubble car high up on the downs.
1: <laughs> that was a nice little subtle kind of uh, insertion there.
0: Yeah, he just takes, he just takes her in the pun, back seat. Pun
1: intended, pun intended with insertion there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well done. Anyway, yeah. So I don't know. Like she's a cool character. I, I enjoyed listening to her. Um, kind of their back and forth, but we knew how it was going to end, right?
1: Oh, of course, as they all do.
0: But particularly Lippy. because he saved her from getting hit by uh, Count Lippy as as uh, she was going into the spa on his first date.
1: Yeah, Count Lippy. What a rank amateur that guy was.
0: <laughs> Quite. Yeah, <laughs> he got done in pretty easy, pretty pretty quickly, didn't he?
1: He really, really did. Um, how about but, um i don't know he's I mean, consider him an ally but i love that teenager that was driving him to the uh, spa that was like a character was great and i like bond's <laughs> interaction with, with with him yeah bond's he was very cool. dismissive of, bonds very dismissive of him at first but soon as they're talking but then they got but then you know they got into guy talk cars car, cars and girls and stuff and yeah the the, the you know you can see see the teenager in that one line where he's like you know he looked him up and down and had a new had a new assessment of his passenger. Just like, oh yeah, this guy's kind of cool. I got a vibe with this guy. Yeah, yeah. This may not be so dull after all, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, he was cool. Uh, I think that's I think that covers the uh, the adversaries. I mean, I, I I I scored quite highly for adversaries in in um, Thunderball, particularly because I guess I've got a soft spot for lighter. Um, And I like he and Bond. I think Fleming enjoys writing that sort of wartime brotherhood type stuff. And I think he does it very well. It feels real. It feels like these guys are actually friends, not just friends the way that Fleming will say that, oh yes, uh, um, me and the foreign secretary or Bond and the foreign secretary hit it off quickly. He liked a man who knew how to smoke a pipe. Like, yeah, that, that's, that's just whole... established
1: like a, a useful acquaintance for plot purposes. Yeah, exactly. It's, you can feel the friendship. You can feel that Fleming is writing about some or reflecting on some friendship that he's had mm-hmm. with the man in, in, in this particular aspect, you know? Yeah,
0: And I come back to what you said a few minutes ago. Unfortunately, one of the things that hasn't translated into the Bond films at all is proper Felix Leiter. Yeah, they wanted to go more about Bond as a superhero instead of Bond as a man who uses the people around him well. And a detective. A detective, and you know, a detective. Yeah. If I ever went back to redo the um, the Bond series, I would make sure that Felix Leiter was more more a part of it because the books. He's one of the best things about our, our books so far. I'm I'm going to go out there and say that. And uh, yes. And he's just—he's undervalued and underappreciated, especially considering that everything else about America Fleming seems to spit on in his books. And so, when we get a guy who he seems to really like, and a partnership with a foreign agency that that's productive and that's respected, then you know, it's—it's it's really something that comes off the pages well for me. So I really like the adversaries here, or sorry, the allies here. Um, in terms of adversaries, we've got to talk about Blofeld. It's his first appearance. We've got Largo, yes. who's at number one. We've got the scientist, who's Coates. Who Coates. Are, he's he's yeah. a pretty cool guy. And, of course, we've got the pilot, Patachi as well. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah, do you There's want to introduce a Blofeld? Of
1: allies and adversaries in this story for sure. And I, I, I give a high score to just to kind of give you a bit of a precursor on, on the adversaries and allies.
0: Well, I mean, I, I don't want to beat it to death. But we do yeah. have to we do have to talk about Blofeld because he's such an yes. instrumental figure in the stories from here on. He's gonna feature in a couple more of these novels. So I think we have to talk about him properly. Uh we get a really good introduction to him and the whole Spectre scene. Do you
1: bit of an info dump though?
0: Bit of an oh, info dump. Though. I know. It is a really big info dump and some of it was I had to read it twice to kinda you know get like, the gist of it. to get the gist of it, yeah. Um
1: it wasn't the background I thought he would have. It, it's it, it's like his background basically is like screwing people over with like using banking ca- banking accounts and establishing you know communication n- 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 networks. He, what I'd like the idea about him though is that it's all about obtaining information. Information is the currency that he, that you know that he feels that runs the world, right? Yeah. So it's 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 his quest to have all the information and control of that information that he believes will will uh, you know, determine um, the for the course of human civilization. Mm-hmm. And this is really kind of a nod actually to the recent Bond film, Spectre, because I found that the Blofeld portrayed in that movie was very akin to the kind of character that Fleming is setting up in the novels.
0: Yeah, I don't think the performance was, but I, def- oh, no, I no, definitely I'm, think... Oh, I'm, we... I'm talking about
1: the physical appearance of Blofeld, the very kind of bland... Mm-hmm. Uh, not to, like, if you look at, we have Drax, we have Goldfinger, we have Dr. No, we got Mr. Big, we got these big Rosa Claire, we got these big, larger than life characters, you know, with all these really interesting descriptions, you know, you know like, with a heart on the left side of the body, or odd job with calluses under his things, and Blofeld, yeah. he's just this little man who controls information you know and mm. i kind of really like the bland aspect of of his character and what fleming was trying to do
0: well he's not a little man he's not a little well, man by, I by, by
1: little man i i mean is that like he's someone who you wouldn't is who you would perceive as diminutive and not much of something but oh actually yeah, is yeah. is a lot more
0: of now course, fleming yeah. does
1: give him those cruel lips that he mentions and stuff to mm. give him an, an intimidating presence to him yeah but at the same time He's very different from the villains that he's cast so far, is my opinion.
0: And he's very different to the villains that he has working for him as well. There's a there's a description of um, there's a description of the uh, the meeting right where uh, Blofeld is introduced. It's 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 a veritable who's who of criminal freaks, really. The 20 guys that work for
1: him. Oh yeah, like you have like uh, former Soviet agents who left uh, because of the detente. They felt you know it just wasn't working for them anymore. The that of the peace they were trying to achieve between the powers then you have like you know the members of the union course the french mafia you have the, the italian mafia at play there mm-hmm. uh, all these and you know macau like I have Count count lippy right so there's all different players um that bulldog is using in in the post-political um post-detente and just the, the modern criminal world at the time
0: yeah, you've got, you've got French mafia, you've got the Sicilians and Corsicans, you have the, yeah. uh, um, like you said, that there's, uh, Russians. <clears throat> there's Russians involved in it, uh, Yugoslav but, operatives, it's it's all, but, and Germans as well, of course.
1: Oh, Germans as well, that's right, and Tongs, and the, uh-huh. because they were former, I believe they had former Gestapo agents as well that, that, that he mentioned too. That's right, yep. yeah.
0: And, Similar uh, to the one
1: that Bond uh, had to hunt down in, uh, in Free Rise Only, in the short story.
0: Mm-hmm. And it is good. I mean, it, I do like that bit, like getting getting to know that he, this man who you, is a conduit of information, is basically made as you said, he's made his criminal organization out of that as a currency. I like that he, he hires these people who, and every single one of them and that and that's, that's something that's written here that Fleming wants to really put across, is that every one of them has a solid cover. Every, there's none, yes. none of them are like the guys we met in Diamonds Are Forever or Goldfinger. They're not
1: amateurs, people, yeah. No,
0: they're all solid cover. Every man possesses A valid passport, up-to-date visas, Fleming rights—you know—for for uh, for travel. So, I mean, it's 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 legitimized. Pardon me, legitimatized, legitimized, legitimized.
1: So let's talk about uh, so Blofeld. We we have him set up as a character, as the so-called antagonist that we're going to encounter for the next couple of novels. I think it was a pretty good setup, despite a bit of an info dump. You know, that's that you kind of kind of have to read through maybe twice just to kind of get just get a general consensus of. You know what the man did to become the man that he was, yeah. Um, and how he got control of this, or how he founded this organization. Um, we want to talk about his number one now. I think Emilio Largo. Yeah, I will just uh,
0: say one more thing though for Blofeld because I know we're not sure. going to we're not going to come back to him. Um, and this is the thing that I I think is really cool. And Fleming does have, as you as you've already intimated, he has little touches of character that come out here. But the thing that I really like about him is that. He's humanized in two ways for me personally. The first is that we we learn of, you know, his violet flavored breath mints that he takes before he has to do anything adversarial or aggressive, almost as if he wants to prepare himself with the... It it can be read both ways, right? Like there's a guy who takes breath mints before he kills people because he wants to have a, a cleanliness about him when he does something dirty or... It's he wants to associate like pathologically almost a flavor to what he does. And I, yeah. think, I think that's really cool from a literary point of view. But from a character perspective, uh, and I'd like your opinion on this too, I thought it was really, really interesting that he has a high moral code, Blofeld, because yeah. that, that whole thing about the kidnapping with the woman, yes, and as soon as a young girl was violated, he returned half of the money for that. I think that was quite a cool character point. Uh, do you want to say anything about that?
1: Well, essentially, what happens is that one of the op- in the in this scene, Blofeld, in this passage, or chapter, or whatever, Blofeld executes one of the Spectre agents because um, one of the operations was to kidnap the daughter of a wealthy American in, in, uh, industrialist, and they bring her back to France and whatnot. And and uh, the orders were to for her to be come back, you know, basically untouched. She'll be returned, no problem whatsoever, as long as you give us the money. And the arrangements were made and it was done. It wasn't like all, all of the other kidnapping operations where they get the money, but then they kill the kid and then they just take off, right? Blofeld didn't want to have that. He had wanted to basically make sure it's a clean exchange of information, of currency, and then that was it. Yeah. It was a criminal act, yes, but as long as they can kind of wash their, health, wash their hands from it in some capacity, that's how Blofeld likes to run things why bother causing further problems by killing the girl, you know?
0: That's right. Um,
1: it gives a reputation of, of respect and at the same time fear because they do things so 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 differently. So Blofeld punishes the, um, the Spectre officer because he had his way with the girl. Mm-hmm. Um, either raped her consensually or not. They never really confirm if she did or not. I dare say not. I have no idea. Stockholm Syndrome is an ambiguity in itself, okay? Yeah. But I'm just basically saying is that he violated this girl, and Blofeld did not care for that, because I don't think he cared because he has a high moral code. I think because he has a high opinion of himself and how he does things. And I think he he did it because it was bad business. That's why he returned half the money.
0: Maybe. I I also think... Well, maybe it's too early to talk about whether he has a high moral con- conduct, but I, yeah, I, I, I think, think there's Tracy something I think Tracy Vincenzo
1: there. disagrees with that.
0: Well, maybe, <laughs> but, you know, again, we haven't, you know, we haven't I, I know been we haven't, through but, the book.
1: Yeah, I, I, I know that's, in that, we'll get into detail when that happens, but I'm just saying is is that...
0: Uh, I'm just saying it's a likable part of his character, regardless of oh, whether oh, yeah. it's a moral. It, it, it
1: brings a humanity to him. It shows perhaps that maybe he did it out of money, maybe he did it out of sympathy, you know, like... He sees himself as a, as a man of once controls currency and he's able to detach himself from his criminal works because he feels that what he's doing in his own way is kind of mm-hmm. uh, maybe he sees himself as an idealist who needs yeah. to obtain information and all this all this money and all his currency. For some loftier ambitions but he has to crawl through the muck to do what he wants to do yeah the you know? the
0: altruism of his action kind of comes through or his character comes through a exactly
1: bit. exactly and, and and that's that's true that that that's a good point and i'm glad you brought that up because i just remember that was one thing i want to touch on blofeld was this act of so-called um kindness you know and hmm. and him basically um Feeling that it was up to it was a duty to basically a to indicate that you don't mess with my you don't mess with me because follow my letters, my, my follow my orders to the T and or not. If you don't, then I don't have time for this bullshit in my organization, right? Yeah,
0: correct. I mean, it's a message to both sides and it, it's a different, different message, but okay. So that's Blofeld. There's absolutely no return to the character. We hear of him uh, on the radio at one point, just accepting what Largo says as yes. This this stage of the operation is complete when the plane arrives with the bombs, and that's it. Blofeld does not return in this novel, um, so we know well, we're going to talk. We to do him. have
1: the moments though where Largo is, re- is 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 reflecting back on some things that Blofeld had said, so you can see that. Well, oh, he's working yeah,
0: behind the scenes, but there's no there's no additional or or other scene
1: with. There is you know. no physical appearance of Blofeld in the That's novel. What I meant. no, sorry, exactly. But I think his presence okay. is felt, and I think it's felt because, all obviously Largo respects him, mm-hmm. and he feels himself as part of this team. So he always seems more, even though he is kind of like the villain of this story. He is also kind of still sort of the henchman at the same time, you know. What
0: I mean? He, yeah, he is the henchman, but he's really the villain because Blofeld isn't yet fully opened up and exposed to us by Fleming. But it yeah. does it does raise a question, um, and I suppose the the death, the, the rather brutal murder of Patachi as soon as the planes developed or sorry delivered uh, by Largo with the or by Largo's thug with the knife right up underneath the ne- uh, under the neck and the the jaw. Vargas,
1: I think it was yeah, Vargas, yeah, I believe
0: that must have then come from Blofeld because if Largo had made the decision to do that, then presumably Blofeld would have punished him in a way that he punished, you know, uh, the guy who violated the, the girl, the young girl. So, there, I mean, that must've been a Blofeld call.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh I, I definitely see that. Also, the fact too is like, well, this guy was useful in this, but at the same time he killed, he, he's, he, seems, he probably knew Patage's history. About how Patacci, you know, um, was in, was a, was on the Italian side with, with the fascists in World War II. and he only changed sides because he felt they were losing. So he defected to the Allies, became part of the Italian resistance, and flew mm. for them. And you know, he, and also the fact that he killed his whole the whole crew aboard the Vulcan. I just think I think Blofeld was like, yeah, this guy was useful, but at the same time, can we really trust this guy? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I just found that quote, though, if just before you want to get into Largo for a minute. Um, Blofeld says, uh, uh, We are a dedicated fraternity whose strength lies entirely in the strength of each member. Weakness yeah. in one member is the death watch beetle in the total structure. You are aware of my views in this matter, and on the occasions when cleansing has been necessary, you have approved my action. In this case, I've already done what I considered necessary vis-a-vis the girl's family. I've returned half a million dollars with an appropriate note of apology.
1: I think this is what really makes Spectre kind of stand out is because, okay, so if you think of Spectre, you know, in the idea of it's like, oh, it's the ultimate criminal organization. I mean, this is what Cobra and G.I. Joe or strives to do, yeah. was was inspired by. This is what Hydra in Marvel Comics was inspired by, you Mm -hmm. know, is the idea of Spectre. Yeah. But Fleming here gives it loftier note, like shows an idolism in Blofeld and what he is trying to do. It's almost like the Spectre is kind of like the world that he was trying to create in a, in a little microcosm in France and and his tentacles are spreading out, um, you know, to use the metaphor in the, in the films. And it just seems to me that it's, it, it, it makes it kind of feel more like an ideological thing than it is like just a bunch of crooks getting together and, you know, doing evil schemes. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I totally do. And and make, it, I mean,
1: it, it separates it from the bald man and with the cat. As opposed to the shrewd uh, surveyor and purveyor of information, hoarding of information for political or personal pur- purposes in order to achieve power and whatever altruistic goals that he has in mind.
0: Which is far more modern in terms of villains. like it's it's about information collection, like the guy from uh, what is it Specter like that not not um, uh, who, what was his name? what they call him?
1: The the one that the, what's his name? Was the, guy plays, the guy who plays Mor- Moriarity. I think he was called. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, C. That's Yeah, C. Yeah. C, I C? yeah, right. C, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I mean that's that's the type of villain that will really have power in today's world. A guy who contains and and controls information, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. Anyway, uh, and a page after the apology, we get this description of what happened to number twelve after. Um,
1: number uh, twelve. That that was the
0: guy's name. The the roasted meat and burned fabric smelled. Sped, spread slowly the body of number 12 crumpled horribly there was a sharp crack as the chin hit the edge of the table it was all over and then Blofeld's soft even voice broke the silence so it's its like yeah i can i can i can apologize and return half a million to a family that's been mistreated but if you screw around then you're done you're dead you're roast
1: yeah and it was and uh i think he also made the point too is that it's brilliant in that way because he can hide his ethics in in his um What's the word in his um, practicality or no not not, not practicality, but his um, prudence, I guess I guess you would call it in that way.
0: Yeah. okay, so Largo then uh, the number one he, he for me, yeah, okay, Largo was cool. Um, you know, a big guy, big boat, um, an okay backstory, although we don't have a whole lot about it. Um, I, I think... kind
1: of felt Largo was sort of like um, I guess what I, if with Largo, I'll get into my own version of it, and, and you and you continue yours.
0: Well, no, I, I don't really have a lot more to say. I mean, I, I saw him for what he was. He was a charming man. He was uh, an effective villain, uh, yes. a, a physical physical power and presence that Bond knows he's going to have to deal with at some point, and eventually does underwater. Um, and, this... and if,
1: it builds up quite well. There is a menace you feel with Largo on the screen. His affability, you know, yeah. it kind of reminded me like when he's playing car, playing casino, when he's in the Casino you know, is playing shaman de fair with with him and beating him and Bond is even. I can't believe it, that was actually in the novel that Bond makes that specter comment about the specter is hanging over you because mm-hmm. that to me wasn't like you see in the Bond films about oh this is Bond pissing off the villain just to draw him out kind of thing right like yeah. But Fleming actually did this too. So I, I found that, ki- that kind of interesting.
0: Well, I, I liked that inclusion yeah. in the novel because at this stage, Bond still isn't sure that M has got him on the right hunch. And so he's dropping these heavy-handed hints in an effort to create some sort of a is-it-you-is-it-you Is type <laughs> response.
1: And Fleming and Fleming is also um, really good writing that scene because he makes Largo doubt whether or not Bond knows what he's talking about. Yeah, you that's know? that's
0: one of the best written scenes in the book, and I really liked it. We'll talk about it maybe when we get to narrative, but I think just acknowledging it here will probably do the trick. I thought that was a great scene. Uh, yeah. it, in the film, it's a line that Connery says because he's cool and clever, but in the book, it's total detective work, and I like that. Exactly.
1: That's what I love about this book is the is the detective work in this in this novel. Mm. And when it comes to Largo, I, I found that like. The affability of his character was was really was really great because I think the, the description of him as a mafioso is so perfect because there's that moment at the table where it's almost like as if he's given that, that friendly affability, but there's that Sicilian, as, as Fleming said, that way where all of a sudden, like, you know, like in Goodfellas where, you know, like Joe Pesci is telling a joke and then Ray Liotta says... You, you, um, you know, like, you're really funny, you're really funny. And then, like, it's like on The Sopranos where or any kind of mafia story where that affability is there, but then all of a sudden, with one wrong comment or one wrong gesture, it can all of a sudden lead to someone being shot to death in two seconds. You know what I mean? It's that mafioso kind of uh, aspect of his character uh, that makes him really menacing, where you, there's always this, uh, there's this veneer of friendliness and affability but all of a sudden violence can come out at any moment, you know, and it proves to be true. We see this, we don't see the real nasty side of Largo until the moment that Domino is captured, if you know what I mean.
0: You want to go from here, bud? Uh, you want to talk a little bit more about Largo or do you want to just uh, talk about what we would give these adversaries and allies?
1: Well, I, just the thing with Largo is, um, you know, because he's, if you use, uh, hell, I'm thinking of TV tropes here, but if you use, uh, that, that's a website, b- b- by the way, um, it's not just used for television tropes, it's used for all kinds of tropes in literature, pop culture, and all this sort of stuff. Um, Blo- L- L- Largo kind of falls under what's, what's called the dragon, or kind of like the main henchman to Blofeld's big bad. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you feel that the presence of Blofeld, um, it kind of stole a little bit development of Largo's character it kind of over it kind of looms over him and he has that you know that he's the henchman you know through the story but um he comes across a pretty cold menacing individual who hides behind a facade of friendliness and you, you, you know like i'm a friendly italian guy you know like i'm an adventurer you know i love my toys i love my disco volante ship and i love treasure hunting and sort of stuff and he's very friendly and you know, you kind of like him. He, he, you can see how he an easy man to like and how he can charm yeah. all the ladies and whatnot. And how he could charm Domino and give her what, he want, what she wanted, you know, from uh-huh. uh, the orphan life that she was leading, right? And getting so, back to the cover, brilliant.
0: the cover idea of the Spectre operatives, that works really well because his cover is airtight. It is really, really a good cover as this adventure. Oh. Um, you know, Treasure Hunter.
1: Yeah, his cover is 100% airtight. You think of every aspect of the storyline. Um even when bond is
0: about to go down on the big strike. Time. And then after a delay for some technical difficulties on the part of the BFG and some domestic responsibilities here on my own part, um, we're back to finish off our chat on Thunderball. We're about halfway through. We've just started our angle. And uh, I think, Josh, we're ready to give our scores, aren't we, for uh, the A.
1: Oh, adversary and allies. Absolutely. I just want to add another uh, uh, another thing there that we kind of continued off. Uh, we pretty much, I think, we discussed Largo to the, to the, to an extent. Um, I wanted to mention Kutz too, because Kutz, um, he seemed kind of just like one of those nerdy, kind of bullied, kind of guys who just does what the, what the henchmen say. But there was a moment I found which was really interesting was when he suggested that how what's his, how Largo could torture Domino in a better fashion to get more information. And that just kind of came up to me as really kind of, wow. So this guy's not just a coward or you know and weak, but he's also cruel at the same time.
0: So mm-hmm. that was a kind mm-hmm.
1: of an interesting faucet that Fleming gave Kutz.
0: Yeah, he was he was a cool character. Um, a couple of things. First of all, uh, sorry, I'm eating. I got my tea and my supper happening right now. Uh, in in the spirit of a of a Caribbean, uh, Bahamian, story. I went away and uh, made us a seafood creole, and that includes uh, fresh scallops and king prawns with some uh, onions and green peppers and tomato. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really good. Um, it's actually a staple, something we do every other week here. Uh, Sarah Back am
1: and... smacking my lips already.
0: Mm, Sarah and I both love it. So um, because we're normally finished our recordings before supper, uh, I'm taking, uh, <clears throat> taking my tea with me to the studio, as it were. Uh, so <laughs> I, I apologize for the... The um, the rudeness of what must only sound like uh, um, people eaten because it's exactly what's happening. People are eating. Anyway, that's not what I wanted to say. Uh, that's my it gives
1: uh, a verisimilitude to everything that we're doing here.
0: Yeah, well, I kind of thought it fit, you know, and it, it fit in the way that we've got seafood and we've got uh, a lot of ocean left to discover in this uh, story. But my really. point,
1: we do get more 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 Fleming's underwater life in this one too, more Jacques Cousteau esque.
0: Oh yes. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and when we get there, I'm going to talk all about uh, the Barracuda because um, I, I did some research on Barracudas. This is the third book now that he's given Barracudas a bad name. I don't know what the biographical um, issue was. I don't know if he was attacked by a Barracuda or if he was terrified shitless of a Barracuda. But something must have happened to Fleming because Barracudas get a bad name all through the Bond series. And Maybe he's, uh, a
1: heart, maybe he's not a heart fan.
0: Ah, ah, good one. I like it. Uh, did, did they sing that?
1: Yes, they did. Okay, cool. Barracuda. Yeah. Right. Okay. Anyway,
0: we'll get to that. But yeah, this thing about cuts that you you were talking about, I like the way that Largo doesn't trust him. He doesn't like him. He's just on board his ship, but he doesn't really like him. Do you, know, do you get that vibe?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. He was basically saying like he was trying. To, they have to keep him like uh, down in the. In, uh, they had to keep him down, you know, in the in the in, in uh, working in in the uh, ship's engine room or something like that, just giving him something something to do so that he wouldn't have to, to deal with him whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's yeah. a liability as well. Because if he shows up, you know, if he shows up or walks around or whatever, um, he, he because he was a defector, it's very easy that he could be spotted, right? And oh, yet totally. at the same time, he does bring Kutz to the to, to the casino.
0: Anyway, so okay, you want to just fire on then with your A score.
1: So I pretty much, because of these, the smorgasbord of adversaries and allies in this book, um, including we have Captain Peterson, a pretty cool American officer who Bond got along with pretty well, and as well as the strike team, um, who I think was really key in you know in setting those guys up so that you got kind of an emotional attachment to them when some of them die in the big battle. Um, on top of everything else that we went through, uh, including the vile Patachi um... Yeah, I think an Adversaries and Allies, um, combined with the awesome Felix Lighterness that uh, runs through the story, I'm given a five on Adversary and Allies.
0: Mm, I was tempted to do the same thing. And I split it right down the middle. For the Adversaries, I went four because although I really liked Largo and I thought Coates was cool and the Patachi stuff was nice, Blofeld, underdeveloped, um, you know, a big info dump when we first meet him underdeveloped in, in terms of his presence in the story. And, yeah. and I know that that's deliberate. I understand that that's deliberate because Fleming has a bigger plan to let him come back into the stories. But um, I went four for the uh, adversaries and I went a solid five for the allies. And so I'm cutting it in the middle with a 4.5. I really liked the police commissioner too. I thought that he was really cool. The Pittman, yeah. the yeah. Yeah, the guy that uh, runs Pit. there.
1: Pittman. Hmm. Pit. Pitman and the reliable Santos too is kind of like the, man, the good man Friday again.
0: Yeah, they're both pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, so I went f- uh, five for allies, four for adversaries. Split it with a four-five, so we're not far away.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that that that's even. So let's move on to the uh, narrative then. Okay. You want to start? Uh, pretty much. This was a sharp thriller. Um, I think I discussed that uh, you know several times already. Um, As soon as the Shrublands interlude came to an end, I did like how the Shrublands adventure indicated Bond's ambition for the good life and good health, you know, that comes with that good life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the dismay of a Scottish maid, we discussed that. Uh, And then his return to the old ways when the crisis emerges. Um, Then after that, I mean, it starts firing on all cylinders. It felt like a really good detective story more than a crazy Bond adventure that we're used to. And maybe this is why Boucher might've given it a bit of a, of a boost because it was much more of a standard storyline than the other previous novels had been. Um, That modern thriller aspect that you mentioned, you know? Um, Not just that, I just think it was kind of just a really kind of different story than what he's done before, and the premise that showed up that, okay, so we have, think about it at the time, we have the Cold War, where which which is just kind of on, it's kind of toning down a little bit. I mean, this is 61 when when Fleming wrote this, and even before, like, when they were putting it together, uh, so this is before the Cuban missile crisis where the cold war, you know, hot, so no longer cooled down. It went hot again. Right. So, uh, this was a period where people would, would be pretty frightened that, you know, all these people, uh, of this cold war, well, what are the governments going to do with them? So these guys are basically going to form their own kind of terrorist kind of networks like Spectre and do things like this. So I think Fleming was bringing a, um, a bit of realism to that. And I think that's probably why the, the book, picked, the idea of that, I think probably um, thrilled a lot of people. Um, the struggling story is kind of dull compared to the rest of it, but I think it was necessary for the narrative. But again, we have this, serendip- this serendipity moment where the main plot where Bond is not even involved in is connected to him through some capacity. So, Regardless, is that like Fleming can't seem to give Bond a simple assignment, hardly, where he just kind of comes out of nowhere, takes the job, and does it. There has to be some sort of connection to him so that he has the connection to the the narrative, even as strained as this one was compared to the more stronger connections that he had in previous novels. Um, It gave an aura of mystery and how Bond can never relax no matter where he goes, so I kind of like that aspect. Um, So the life always follows him. Um, I kind of rolled my eyes at that that Lippy was the man keeping an eye on Patachi on the air base nearby. That again, <laughs> though, is, is sort of, again, that goes into that factor of the serendipity, right? Where the inconvenience of the, of the, of the plot. So this is part of Fleming's style, I guess. Uh, so that kind of robs it of a half a point in my, my opinion. Now, what I'm not sure of is the poaching of the, of the, of the story that Whittingham and McClory came up with. How much do we know? Is the narrative is Fleming, and how much do we know of it is McClory? So I'm going to guess that I'm going to take a, a educated guess here and say that some of the stuff, like uh, the creation of the, the brother and the sister, and the sister getting revenge for for what her lover did to her brother, I've, and then the idea of the organization like Spectre putting the nuclear bomb in, those kind of aspects I think were probably McClory's design. Okay. But I think Fleming fleshed in the details and filled in the characters in a way that McClory didn't, in my opinion. Um, especially if you look at his adaptation of Never Say Never Again, right? So uh,
0: We just don't know, though, do we?
1: We just don't know, exactly. So I kind of have to stay at give a given narrative of, of, of a four to Thunderball. I really do. I, I really want to like it more, but there's just something holding back for me on it. And it's, I think it's this ambiguity about how the narrative was constructed itself. And how it compares to the other Bond novels, and how different it is in that respect because it's more of a straightforward thriller. You know what I mean? I and do. Yeah. The pacing and the pacing is kind of like different too because you have the Shrublands adventure, then you have Bond, but then you get beginning you get one chapter through the for the perspective of Patachi, and then you get the perspective of Largo, and then you get like Bond meeting Domino, and then then you get you know what I mean? So it's it's like it's in a it went pretty swiftly once you get past the, once you get into the main storyline after Sh- after Sh- shrublands. But at the same time, the pacing was kind of slightly slow because of the I guess the cutting between different character perspectives, you know. But I like that bon- that that Fleming gave uh, Largo uh, his own kind of chapters and his own perspective on things. I found that kind of interesting, and I really like it when he does that when he's not just Bond centric in his narrative. So mm-hmm. I think a solid four is good for Thunderball.
0: It's a good mark. I'm, I'm quite enjoying listening to your, your justification of that and kind of the things that worked for you because the things that worked for you and the things that worked for me, I think, yeah, we certainly share some of those, but I, I felt different about a couple of things too. And um, I also gave it a four for narrative. And like you, I wanted to give it more because I feel like it's it's uh, it, it kind of deserves more. But... Uh, um. I'll talk you through my my idea and then maybe we can we can uh, see see where we where we kind of color in the same lines. As we said uh, earlier on that this is quite a modern pretty engaging and believable story, perhaps more today than it was back then because of global terrorism and I mean elements of 9/11 have already made some of these things not so fantastical, you know.
1: You could even point out that up. Uh, aspect of the thunderball storyline the hide the mm-hmm. the whole thing of like um this of, of, of a pilot um, basically taking over a plane and stealing a nuclear warhead um the the fourth season of 24 actually took that whole storyline and, and put it in in like a mini arc in in there so that gives you an idea of how modern a type of a threat this kind of is you know yeah yeah <laughs>
0: I really like chapter 7. This is where Bond moves from the domestic doldrums to the full mission preparation, you know, and, and how it's very com- yeah. it's comic in his house and it's tense at headquarters. And there's a tension in MI6 that I, it's very believable, it's very palpable, and I I get the feeling when I'm reading this that Fleming has been in a situation perhaps not uh, not of the same international gravity, but certainly of the same conflicted gravity. And the the, the urgency
1: resonates, you know mm. what I mean?
0: Yeah, and so I like that. I like Chapter 7. It's cool. Um, I've already spoken about M and how I think he's got a good shake in this novel. Um, narratively, I did, however, find that the action lulls a little bit. And this is where I think you and I had a little different look at it. Not a disagreement so much, but um, a, a difference nevertheless. That... You felt that maybe the the shift in uh, character perspective affected, or maybe slowed down, the action of the story a bit. Whereas I was wanting more of it. Like I would have liked to leave Bond and Felix and have more war room scenes. Like what's going on in London? Give me Oh, more. I agree. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And the movie version kind of provided that a little bit better in my in my in my in my opinion.
0: It did, but it did other things so very very badly. Mm. By comparison, but I, I just I just feel like by staying in Nassau and the environment, yeah, okay, fine, we get to focus on the action, but the tension might not have been amplified the way it could have been, you know, through return scenes back to London or maybe an additional scene of a Spectre operative or the meeting closing. Or, do you know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, I'll argue that I do like the idea that because Bond and 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 Lighter, they were anxious about you know sending off the information too early because they didn't want to have everyone scramble. The tension of the idea, the idea that if they, everyone scrambled for this one thing because of the of, of what Lighter and Bond thought at the time was kind of was kind of somewhat only a hunch, then they were worried about that. So that's why I didn't think you got scenes with like M back in London or whatever because it was part of the tension of. You know, do I report to M or not? Do I report to M or not? So when you finally get like a communiqué or something, like a telegraph from M or from you know from the CIA or whatever, it, it kind of it it fuels that realism mm-hmm. that these two guys are working, you know, like um, on the you know on assignment and they're and they're and a higher and a higher authority is waiting for their response, you know. So yeah, it kind of kept that tension and suspense in the air. You know yeah, what I,
0: mean? I know exactly what you mean, and I'm delighted that you picked up on that because it's one of the next notes I've got here. I'm going to read a section. Um, that kind of plays into this idea of the guesswork, you know, that, that they're doing in terms of detectives and, and this whole idea of reporting back to M, which, as you correctly say, Bond kind of strays away from or he kind of shies away from doing because he doesn't want knowing the severity and the seriousness of the situation. He doesn't want anybody taking a false charge at something. Um, right. So Fleming writes, he sat in his room and wrote his negative report to M. He read it through. It would be a depressing signal to get. Should he say anything about the wisp of a lead he was working on? No, not until he had something solid. Wishful intelligence, the desire to please or reassure the recipient, was the most dangerous commodity in the whole realm of secret information. Vaughn could imagine the reaction in Whitehall, where the Thunderball war room would be ready, anxious to grasp at straws. M's careful. I think we may conceivably have got a lead in the Bahamas. Absolutely nothing definite, but this particular man doesn't often go wrong on these things. Yes, certainly I'll check back and see if we can get a follow-up. And the buzz would get around. M's on to something. Agent of his thinks he's got a lead. The Bahamas. Yes, I think we better tell the PM. Bond shuddered.
1: Uh, you
0: know, this, this idea that...
1: you're just imagining the flack if he was wrong, right?
0: Not... Uh, yeah, and and the what would happen... <laughs> not just that, but what would happen if the resources were drawn away from a different, more perhaps uh, fitting investigation, right?
1: Exactly. You, you, because then the other... The, the other a- agent might've been on a trail and might've been close to the actual perpetrator. And then this like, you know, it's, I guess it has to do with the brilliance of Largo's cover is why it creates so much doubt in what they were doing. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, totally. Anyway. So, um,
1: so, so that's a good, that's a good reinforcement too, of Blofeld inspectors um, influence in the, in, uh, in the operation, their mm-hmm. grand Omega plan or whatever they call it. Yeah. Um,
0: <clears throat> When, when Felix arrives in chapter 12, um, I got to ask you, did, did you know that that was going to be Felix? Because I knew as soon as I saw the name and the initials, I knew it was going to be Felix Leiter. That oh, was...
1: with the, well, uh, with the F and the L, like with, with the fir- with, with the first F and the, the letter L at the last name? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, like there was, there was really, I, I was just kind of waiting for it. And maybe because, you know, I was informed by the film, but uh, yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, I, I really like Felix's inclusion here. Um, yeah. And did you notice the, like, throughout the story, really, there's elements of the Hildebrand rarity that kind of creep back in with the, the, the boat and uh, kind of the, the Germans on board. And, like, there, there's elements to that. You can see how uh, Fleming still had that in his mind there.
1: Yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah, just a little bit. Like a, like a, Largo is kind of like a more ruthless, intelligent version of Crest, basically,
0: Hmm. Kind of, and and even just the environs of the boat, you know.
1: Yeah, the environs, except for the hydrofoil. But that, that that's pretty cool in itself, though.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um. Right. So, what else can I say about the narrative?
1: Chap- I think we. I think the narrative we covered pretty well. I do want to spend. I do want to mention one thing though that I found interesting was the whole story. I know this kind of goes into her character, but that whole story, that Domino, uh, her kind of supposed fantasy about the art on a cigarette. Case, you know loved
0: it, loved it, loved it. I love that section. And yeah, any, any marks that Domino gets from me come largely from that writing. I think that Fleming, it's probably, now I'm not a woman, and so I'm sure many would disagree with me, but I think that's probably as close to uh, intuitive, sensitive, uh, effective writing of a woman that he's ever done.
1: Oh, I agree. I think right now, like I would say even the but to go into Domino, I think he's probably the strongest character, female character that he's done so far.
0: She's good. I'll, I'll say that much. I mean, I, I know we're, we're moving in that direction, but just before we get into Domino, I got a couple more things to say. In terms of the plot, I like how she's introduced into the story at the cigarette shop, and she's angry and all this. That's quite cool. And
1: and think- you're wondering, how, how did Bond get to her so quickly you know like Hmm. and then of course we get that great little flashback of bond talking to the police and um find out you know who would have a boat uh who who would probably be able to do something to have the resources he gets the information largo pretty much from from like the uh, deputy governor right so uh so in that way it's really it shows already his detective work already he's found domino and it kind of pulls a little twist on the audience it goes oh okay so now i see how he how he did that oh right so bond is already working this okay let's keep you know yeah. this is firing on all cylinders it's great narrative set up great narrative momentum
0: mm-hmm. and fleming um he, he does a good job of of moving it quickly like the dialogue works really well when they meet in chapter 11 i like that Their flirtation is is fun and um yeah it, it, it just really works i i find that um I find that the, uh, the the way that he came across her is serendipitous, of course, but he acknowledges that and he just moves on from it. And that's, you know, I appreciate that. The casino scene in Chapter 15. Um, was it, it
1: serendipitous, though? I, because well, I assume that afterwards, because he knew that Largo, so he knew that she was on Largo's ship. So he probably just tailed her and then ran into the cigarette store and did his whole thing. That's, that's what I assume when,
0: well, no, no, he doesn't do that because in chapter 11, um, and I don't have the exact quotation here with me, but, um, but no, he acknowledges that he found her really quickly and he was surprised that he stumbled upon her.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, okay. well, he knew who he was looking for. And I guess once, yeah, he, it, I guess it wasn't hard to draw her out because of her personality, right? So
0: mm-hmm. anyway, um, the casino scene in chapter 15 is awesome. Bond is edgier. A little more risky than normal, but I guess the stakes too are very much higher than they might have been in the past, which yeah. which works such well. A
1: tense, such a tense, scene, and him and Largo, like just like you know, tête à tête, you know, like it was really good.
0: Yeah, and the climax is believable. I found um, a little unorthodox, uh, but you know, with Bond really worried about Domino and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, his ass was saved by her.
1: Without I think her it's intervention a of his character, so you know, like at, at first I thought, you know, why is is Fleming so like um, make, making Bond, you know, so like, you know, so, so sympathetic and worrisome about Domino and stuff, you know, almost like where he's screaming, Domino, where is she? Where is she? You know, like it was just kind of like really kind of out of character when I first kind of considered it. But then I thought about it. and I thought about, you know, all the women that he's been with so far and everything. And yeah. if we are leading up to, you know, Honor Imagine Magic Secret Service, which I know something about, and you know something about uh, it seems like it's a natural progression of his feelings to, towards women that leads them in this direction you know
0: yeah that's a good observation right so you want to move on to girls do you after our double four score for narrative yeah let's do that but f- before we do that like four does seem i don't know stylistically i feel like we've said so many good things about the story and the jumpy guesswork that, tech- oh, no. that kind of like i feel like maybe four is a bit harsh but i, w- I would just like to say that there are a couple of for me, things that are missing in this book that I I feel should have been there. Like um <clears throat> I don't know if you feel the same way as I do about this, but and, and maybe this plays into locations a little bit too, but you know, we we missed we missed some good plot scenes where the 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 travel scenes, you know, like whether it's in a plane or whether it's on the ground yeah. we don't we don't get a feel for I kind of feel like Fleming is like, well, you've been here before on the Bahamas with my short story. We've been to Jamaica before. I'm not going to work too hard at making this place impressive. I'm just going to let the plot drive everything. And I feel like you lose a little bit of artistic. lose
1: uh, loses style a little bit. I a agree. little bit of
0: style. I think the style's affected here. But again, and he
1: doesn't, he, and he doesn't have a lot of breakfasts either, and they don't really go in into detail about um, uh, you know about his about his daily routines and all those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. But yeah, I'm sticking to four. I might not have justified it properly, but four certainly feels like the right score to give this narrative.
1: Four is a fair score. It's more than fair. I I personally feel for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. I mean, I've given less scores. You know, I mean, yeah. if you think I really about want to
1: it, give it 4.5, but I, there's just there's these factors that hold that back, and I just feel like four is. I think yeah, it's a good way to go for it.
0: No, well, I mean the it narrative, because we got to remember too, right? And this is important. Narrative isn't just the events of the story. We included within narrative plot, pacing, style, writers' kind of description, exposition, all these things. We only talk because we're only doing this for ninety or a hundred minutes. We only talk about you know events in the story, but we're dealing with you know we're dealing with all of these elements when we go to critique it. And I guess that's something that we should probably remind people of a little bit more is that our score for narrative isn't just do we like what happens in the story. It has to do with how the story's rendered and stitched together. Like one of our complaints exactly. about one of our complaints about Goldfinger, despite it being a great story, and we did give it a little bit of a better narrative mark with four or five each of us. One of our complaints was that it felt very episodic and loosely stitched together. Like, these could all be short stories, you know? But Absolutely. But, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And uh, Dr. No, we only gave a 3.5 to. And uh, Diamonds Are Forever, a book we both really liked, only got a 3.5 for narrative. Same with Moonraker. So, we're, we're not exactly giving this a bad mark. It's just, no. um, there are some things that, you know, we don't, we, and perhaps we can't, until this is all over, rank. Or, um, you know...
1: Prop- we have her quibbles. We have her quibbles. Let's just say that.
0: N- nicely put. Okay, enough on that. Let's move on to girls, buddy. Uh, you want to lead?
1: Okay, so our girl, Dominetta Domino-Vitali, or Pitachi, as we come to learn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I would say that she, so far, she's the strongest female character in a Fleming novel we've seen. Um, t- We've talked about... You... Y- 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 I guess you know just just how she comes out as a character, as a as a as a personality in, in that story that she tells Bond in the casino um, over drinks, you know, about about her fantasies fantasy as a young girl regarding the man, the hero on a cigarette case, and and whatnot, and it really kind of shows that she has this romantic view of the world, and also a romantic view, but also a very jaded view that kind of comes from that romance and that disappointment, you know, and her life being an orphan. Um, um, being a, a person who was supposed to rise up and become like this, they, her parents sent her to England to become, uh, an actress. And then her parents were killed in a train crash and there was nothing coming from that. And then her own brother, you know, being kind of a black sheep and doing his own thing and uh, all of these things, her ended up basically prostituting herself to get the life that she wanted with Largo. Yeah. Uh, um, and the choices that she made, um, at the time, were personal, but the, but then she realized that by the end that the choices that she made were pivotal for almost uh, the survival of many many more p- people besides herself. And I, I just like how Fleming put that burden on on her in in the end of the, the end of the narrative and and allowed her to execute that and give her some agency. And I really appreciated that. Did you find there was kind of almost like an author's guilt uh sleeping into the passages where you know where bond's thinking about domino as he feels bad for her, even when he like does that kind of questionable well i'm going to go give her really bad news about her brother and pretty much make her um an informant but i have to you know i'll sleep with her first right so
0: <laughs> i know like and, and time's ticking you and he be... says he
1: does it yeah he does he, it. well yeah. that And he says he does it out of pity, you know, that he feels bad for her before he gives her, he wants to make her feel good and feel happy. And these are genuine feelings, these are genuine feelings that he has, but it's also kind of a shitty thing to do at the same time, you know. And I agree with her when she's like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, you know, but but then I guess she rationalizes, you know, that he does actually have feelings for her and he didn't mean what he did. And, but then it's she understood, he understood his duty. So she was a smart girl in that way, but I kind of wish that maybe she was a, you know just that would kind of make her a bit of a stronger person, but that's a pipe dream to get in, in, in a novel at this time <laughs> period. You know what I mean?
0: I do. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
1: You know, like I'm sure like today, like some feminists reading this book would be, you know, like, Oh my God, like the fact that she's actually still caring about him after that, like good. She it's good. She understands he's an agent and he had to do what he had to do. And he's a dickhead, but you know, he's right. I got to help him out. But to, you know, to be attached to him in that way, I mean, this is again kind of a broken woman thing that, like Tiffany Case, which is kind of cliched, but I think Fleming just does a much more vivid version of that character than before. Mm -hmm. And I think just I think it's because her personality and how she's written Domino comes out much stronger, and uh, and a much more powerful figure uh, compared to the previous ones that we had. I just want to read um, that fantastic moment where. Dom, uh, where Domino takes out Largo, okay, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. go for it. Yeah, there's a fantastic passage, basically, where she takes out um, Largo. It's like in the second last chapter here, but um, we get to the point where. Uh, just give me a second.
0: And and of course, by this point, her, she has a motive as well as saving the world or whatever. Yeah, at the Geiger
1: Jean, uh, 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 yeah. Cause Bond gets her the Geiger cause once he told the news that, you know, he gives her the dog tags that, um, mm-hmm. you know, Patachi is killed. Uh, Largo had him killed. Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know if, um, if she knows that, um, Patachi, her brother, you know, was killed the crew or whatever. I don't know if she knows those details, or that he. I guess she would kind of assume, I suppose, that he was that kind of a black sheep, and this is what he ended up doing, right? So and he did it for the money, you know, and he never looking for her, you know. He left her drone her devices. So at the same time, it's that kind of like we're going back to that thing that bought, that from Largo, you know this italian background you know like of uh vendetta you know that they kind of like really seeps into the narrative in a primal way and i, I think that kind of made largo patachi and domino like this unholy trinity of uh betrayal and uh trust and at the same time protection you know that goes back to that sicilian kind of godfather feel you know
0: mm, that's an interesting I, way to look at it
1: i think that made it, and i think that really kind of grounded largo and that whole dynamic outside of the whole like evil organization specter is, you know, like I think it brought a personal feel to those events and, and made them much more urgent and much more um, sympathetic, I think, you know, and it gives that moral ambiguity again to domino, you know, avenging Largo because is she avenging her br- her brother, you know, who was a bit of an asshole and, you know, pretty much a murderer as well. Or was she, you know, avenging herself or was she killing Largo to save bond? Like there's so many things, right. But, um,
0: there is. So um, I, I do. There, I do agree Keith. with you. But, I, but before you read that bit though, uh, what I was trying to say about her having a motive is that uh, by the time she does strike the um, you know the killing blow, he has already tortured her with a cigarette ash and, uh, and and ice cream.
1: Yeah. So she's also bruised and beaten, and he just leaves her there. And like and this like terribly. I don't. I don't even know in the film version. I don't think he got to the point where he could use the fire and the ice. He was interrupted in the film version but in the book version she gets burned and tortured you know to to a stronger extent as we learn in the hospital scene at the end so you got to imagine her you know all the stuff she's been through burned and broken she manages to get out of her cover out of her uh, uh, off the bed where she was tied spread eagle she manages to get out somehow because he just assumed that she was weak anyways he would just leave her there she's probably untied anyways because she's so tortured he just left her there and and because the operation was on the go he had to leave right so and he would kill her when he when when he got back. That was the whole plan. But you can imagine her, you know, having the gumption to get up from besides the pain, grab that harpoon, dive down all the way, you know, and then save Bond and how she appears, you know, like it's almost like it's like it's like a it's almost like a divine intervention, you know, of like justice and revenge at the same time, right? Basically here, so you have this the scene where Blow, where um, Largo is trying to strangle Bond with an octopus, which yeah. is awesome it is in its own way. which is. <laughs> I kind of added that into the equipment, actually. Um, but um, so, yeah, Largo leaped forward. Bond kicked off the coral and dived down for Largo's groin, the jagged rock in his hand, but Largo was ready. His knee came up hard against Bond's head, and at the same time, his right hand came swiftly down and clamped the small octopus across Bond's mask. Then from above, both his hands came down and got Bond by the neck lifted him up like a child and held him at arm's length, pressing. Bond could see nothing. Vaguely, he felt the slimy tentacles groping over his face, (coughs) getting a grip of this mouthpiece between his teeth, pulling. But the blood was roaring in his head, and he knew he was gone. Slowly, he sank to his knees. But how? Why why was he sinking? What had happened to the hands at his throat? His eyes squeezed right in agony, opened, and there was light. The octopus, now at his chest, let go and shot away among the coral. In front of him, Largo, Largo with a spear sticking horribly through his neck, lay kicking feebly on the sand behind him and looking down at the body. stood a small pale figure fitting another spear into an, an underwater gun, the long haired flowed around her head, like a veil in the, in the luminous sea, just incredible, like almost like goddess, uh, divine intervention, you, you know, just coming down from the light you, from the surface of the water coming down. And seeing that, you know, like, yeah. and I like the fact that she's also loading another harpoon and like, is he, he better be freaking dead. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like,
0: yeah. Yeah. I'm going to uh, finish, I'm going to finish this job
1: yeah exactly I thought that was just great and uh it' just really cemented to how much I really like lo- i really liked her character in the story despite you know some of the Fleming touches that kind of tries to you know weaken her 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 character i I think for some reason he was able to overcome that in his writing and I could tell that he felt for this character was this kind of an apology i wonder to like in his own life you know how he's you know how he's dealt with women his whole life and stuff like that and or maybe he just met a really awesome Italian girl. I have no idea.
0: I, I don't know enough about <clears throat> really how much he suffered in terms of his relationships, right? But yeah. I do really feel like there's – if there's not an apologist at work, there's definitely a an appeal to mm-hmm. to attract more of the women – or sorry, not to attract more, but certainly to, to respect perhaps a, a female audience. After all, two of his short stories – uh, were published in uh, for your eyes only came from uh, Women's Monthly or Cosmo, right?
1: True. And true, so yeah.
0: th- this might be on his this this may be an attempt on his part to give Bond a more um, respectable woman um, or perhaps a more uh, a more dynamic female counterpart. I don't I don't know, but I like it. Whatever his motivations, it was a good decision. She she does work very well.
1: Yeah, I know. I really liked her character. And uh, um, I, I like of I like I like kind of like her as an evolution of the care of the, of the girls that we've seen before. I kind of I, I like that aspect and how she and mm-hmm. how that she fits into that. Um, yeah, I think again, I think that
0: young young girls, young women, rather, or women reading this book will I don't think they'll be kind of eye rolling or put off in quite the same way they will when they read about uh, a pussy galore who seems tough at first, but was raped by her uncle, a, <laughs> you know, a Tiffany case who, and I love Tiffany case, who's really hardened, but you know, she has her own terrible past. And, you know, yeah. this, this is like, and, and that's the other thing too, in weighing up how much I like Domino, I'm, I'm, I, I, she. I don't think she's a terribly strong female character, but in in the the, the Bond books, she's a standout strong female character. That's that, so, that's
1: the way that that's the way I'm 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 viewing her, and I think it's why I gave such yeah. a high score is because of the difference. But again, is their character of Domino? Is this Fleming? You know, preaching to the female audience, trying to sympathize with them, and you know, get them something to enjoy. You know, because he was trying to diversify there, maybe. Or, because since the the idea of the brother and the sister does come from McClory, is Domino's character traits is that more of McClory's invention? You know that that that's the question. So that's why I was kind of
0: that's an interesting again, yeah yeah is is McClory's fingerprint on Domino's development yeah domino i felt that she was well written lacked some of the dimension though of a tiffany case i did really think that you know she lacked a bit of the dimension we didn't get as much about her backstory uh, but we did get the whole you know um, uh, hired woman type thing from her but I'm, I'm glad that she has an independence and a loneliness instead of an abused backstory it makes her more interesting um, she's tough committed liberal especially particularly the in intersexuality and i like that um, not because that's the type of women I like. I like it because I needed a character like this finally from Fleming. She's she's up there with the best of the girls, really, isn't she? I mean, she's not in it as much she as I would it, as much as I would like, but uh, she's suitably in there enough. Oh, I
1: wanted more of her, you know, in that sense. I wanted more uh, of her character.
0: But then, but then you're going to have a lopsided story, and you know, if if the story is really revolving around this world crisis, then we can't have too much of her. She needs to be a plot device at some point, so. Um, but she's not the only girl we've got. We've got May and I really liked her scenes and we've got Patricia yes. Fearing, we got Patricia Fearing too who's compliant. Uh but of course she does um she's compliant at the end after playing hard to get for so long, eventually turns to the magic yeah. to turns to the magic penis and you know everything's great.
1: Yeah, she wasn't as badly portrayed as she was in the film version, that's for sure.
0: No, and um no she wasn't. But yeah, girls, uh I went four point five. Uh there's just something yeah, that, that
1: was four point five
0: something i couldn't do i could i couldn't go five because i uh i don't know like the, she's not she's i don't know she's just not a five but she's really up there and i think i think domino will be an attractive female character to read for anybody man or woman i don't think she'll disappoint
1: yeah i was going to go for five but again i mentioned my reservations regarding you know how much of the fingerprint of a Corey is here, you know, and, and whatnot. So that was kind of my basis there. So I kind of, you know, stayed safe with uh, I think 4.5. That's, cool. that's what I, that's what I gave.
0: Josh, uh, you got a plot summary for the first story,
1: Octopussy. I do, I do. So let's uh, get into Octopussy, shall we? The second use of "pussy" in a uh, in a Ian Fleming tale.
0: This one even more curious than the first.
1: More curious, yes. Some and some interesting metaphor, questionable metaphor. I'm not sure exactly, but we'll delve into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will now stop using the word Dell since I've probably used it twice and in the in the past two days, not just on this program, but just in general. Very good. That aspect, if you know what I mean. In that regard. In that regard, yes, of <laughs> course. Those those are the little writing tools that they teach you in grade seven to build essays with. <laughs> Moreover, therefore. Oh, <laughs> right. uh, okay. So Octopussy deals with the comeuppance of a former major, Dexter Smythe. Back in World War II, Smith was the shit. He was a career record uh, with the military in World War II, vicious campaigns all the way through the war. But after the fall of Berlin and the post-war roundup, he got himself mired in the Miscellaneous Operations Bureau while working in Austria. This tale itself is bookended with Smythe scuba diving offshore from, his, from, from Wavelets, his estate on the north shore of Jamaica, where he is trying to tame the sea cat, quote-unquote, his (laughs) octopusy, continuing there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. by feeding it uh, a scorpion fish with his spear, all the while feeling sorry for himself for getting caught for killing an innocent man uh, that he refused to share the hoard of Nazi gold he serendipitously discovered in the Kaiser Mountains outside of Kitspiel. Hey, Kitspiel. Kitspiel. Now, in his 50s, we learn that um, a man named Bond has just paid him a visit a visit that radically changed the outlook on his entire life. He's fading health, two thromboses, kept alive by pills. Smythe is about to have his breakfast of gin and ginger ale, and Bond shows up, inquiring about Smythe's MOB duties after the fall. Bond has no time for any BS that Smythe throws at him and basically says, you know what, you gather your thoughts. I'm going to go outside here and enjoy the nice weather on your patio and then take a look at the sea. When I come back, have your you know have everything all worked out, okay? It'll go easy on you. That's a, that's in a nutshell what Bond tells him.
0: Yeah, I like that. Bond knows damn well that he he's not going to sit there and let this guy lie his way through. So he, he says, "Look, you know why I'm here. I'm not going to waste my time explaining it to you when you know exactly why I've caught up with you. You sit here and figure it out for a minute. I'll be back later."
1: And he also gives the indicator too that he know he's talking to the Foo brothers, the people who arranged the uh, gold to be brought, broken down for him and he get the money so it's pretty much he knows where the gold came from all of the connections are already there there's only there's there's one thing more that bond needs to t- needs to confirm uh, for Smythe that he's pretty much you know on the uh, on the chopping block now so Smythe reminisces and we learn step by step how this lady killing officer in charge of running up possible Gestapo and sending them to Munich probably Dachau or one of the camps outside there. They mentioned the, the concentration camp inside Munich, and that was definitely Dachau. So what, now whether or not there was a different camp established by the Allies, I don't know. But during the war, the main concentration camp was Dachau, and that was inside of Munich. Um, he comes across certain files when he's going through the Gestapo records, one which indicated that a contingency consisting of Nazi Reichsbank gold bullion having. been neatly tucked away in the Kaiser Mountains outside of Kitzbühel in the Tyrol. Needing a guide to locate this horde, Smythes gathers up a former Austrian officer uh, on the side of Germany because of the annexation and all that, named Hans Oberhauser, who before the war worked as a ski guide in the region. Oberhauser, who was a nice guy and not a Nazi, just a man caught up in the times, serving his country slash gun to the head, most likely is torn from his crying family. Uh, S- S- Smythe ensures that he will be brought back from the interrogation if he is innocent. Smythe uses this leverage to get to know the man and eventually befriend him by offering his acquittal for any possible connections to Nazi war crimes. Oberhall is, of course, grateful about this, and he trusts this asshole to spend a day with him climbing in the mountains as he is a man after Smythe's own heart. So Smythe uses Oberhauser to ascend the peak of gold, so to speak, where near the summit, after feeling bad that Oberhauser asked him to share in his soldat, his little sausage there, Smythe, having found the stone markers indicating the gold hoard, disguised as a climber's memorial, decides to put two rounds of his Webley into into Oberhauser's head. And once locating the body after it fell from that impact of the two bullets, um, he manages to to, uh, dump the body into a crevasse off the glacier. With Herculean efforts, Smythe manages to get the gold bars down the mountainside to his vehicle, and after his posting, manages to smuggle the bars over to England. With his fortune secure, he marries a pretty girl, Mary Parnell, and brings her with him to paradise in Jamaica. That's if you call the life of guilt alcoholism a rapidly distanced and faithless marriage that ends up with Mary's suicide and smith with all the wealth he wants on top of alien health and two thromboses, paradise. Which I don't. I'm glad. I'm glad you you, 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 you concur. Vaughn hears all of this and dispassionately provides the fact that Oberhauser was a second father to the orphan turned super spy. He says the jig was up when they find when uh, when the I guess the the glacier melted and they found Oberhauser's body and it was preserved enough that they could do a proper autopsy where they found the two Webley bullets. Now, Bond says that in a week or so, they're going to come to arrest him for the court martial. Hint, hint, hint. Blow your brains out to hide the shame. Not your shame. We know about that, but that of that of England, the service record of loyalty to your country that you do not want to be smeared. So they kind of want Bond. kind of saying, just take yourself out quietly, and you know, like, and so it won't be a a, a big issue, you know.
0: Plus, it but, would save it would save a lot of it would save a lot of hassle for you know to go to trial for something like this. That ultimately is going to end up with all the evidence and all the research. It's still it's going to have oh, it would be a, it
1: would be a scandal. It would be a great scandal, absolutely. Especially like in the post-war, you know, like where in Austria, for example, I think was at that time it wasn't part of like the Soviet bloc, so. You know, it it would have been a big scandal, I think, internationally in that case, too. You know, like after the war, like an innocent prisoner of war uh, who wasn't even even charged, you know, being executed like that. Like that's just – and Smythe can play on the whole thing being it was war and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, that's just his vanity talk in there, right? Yeah. So after Bond leaves, uh, Smythe is already planning his defense, his own guilt at the mercy of his own vanity and entitlement. That's when the scorpion fish he tries to catch manages to, to impale him with his poison stingers. Knowing that he will die soon, he still wants to feed that octopusy. But this backfires and he is, um, pulled below by the strong tentacles. Some Jamaican kids find him, entangled with the octopusy. Awkward. Poetic justice? You decide.
0: Yeah, I think it is poetic justice. There's definitely karma running through this story.
1: Oh, there's karma for sure. It's, uh, a cautionary tale at its best but i'm just trying to find out the symbolic connections of the octopus and to the story and i think we we can, we we can explore that a little bit i suppose
0: we can yeah um i don't know uh i don't know where you want to start in talking about this but i think i think we just we just do our angles right i mean the short stories yeah. provide us with an extra challenge when it comes to doing our angles where we look at the adversaries allies narrative this you know the style the way the book's written girls oh, yeah. locations and equipment but yeah I, I managed to do one here um I, I don't know how long you want to talk about Octopussy. I'm, I'm quite happy to follow your lead, but I like... I, I guess I just want to mention a couple of things first, and then I'll just give you my angle out. I, I do like that um, Bond is kind of... Bond is is obviously upset, and he feels personally affronted by having to do this, go to the guy who killed his... Um, father-like figure when he was a younger man. The guy who taught him skiing and gets a shout-out, doesn't he, in um, Honour Majesty's Secret Service, I think.
1: He does too, yes, that's right.
0: But, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's frustrated and he's angry, and that's why he doesn't want to play games with this uh, Dexter Smythe guy. He just wants Smythe to, to fess up and make a plan to kill himself so that Bonds at least can put it behind him without the unnecessary trial and all that kind of stuff. The court-martial, as you say. Um, we've got some we got some nice information at the beginning that's kind of written by Fleming as stream of consciousness or at the very least first person uh, from Dexter Smythe's point of view. Um, he, <clears throat> I, I don't know what you think of his character. He's a bit of a dick though. I, like he's, he, he reminds me a lot of like Milton Crest kind of.
1: He, he's kind of a dick but I think he's a man who felt that I guess for the fighting for his country, You know, you can't deny his heroism and stuff like that. You know, but at the same time, he might just, just like killing, you I mean, that's yes, that, yes. that a very strong possibility. Yeah. Some people are, are just, you know, made for war that way. And he's it, definitely a man who, was, I think, became vain because of his service record, and I think he also had a sense of entitlement about him. He, you know, like, he enjoyed, you know, mixing it up with the, with the girls, like, in, in the battalions, you know, and definitely a lady killer, kind of a vain kind of individual, and with the sense of, as I was mentioning, entitlement. Uh-huh. And I think it was this entitlement that felt that, you know, this is my, you know, what what more can I get from this war besides everything that I've done? You know, like, I don't feel like I've accomplished anything. All I've done is shoot a bunch of Germans and got these victories done. So you can tell that his, his duty to his country doesn't go beyond, you know, just like going, well, I'm alive. And I, you know, and I got to kill some people. But, you know, what else can I get from this, right? So it's always thinking about him, 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 yes. and himself yes. first. But I think because of... Uh, of how he was raised and whatnot, there is a complication in, in him, where or a complexity, I should say, where he does feel guilty about the things that he does, but always his vanity, his sense of entitlement keeps overrunning that, and that pre- and that pretty much produces the actions that, come, that inevitably lead to his downfall.
0: But you've read him well. Um, you you may be reading him a little bit more deeply than I am. Uh, he certainly is more complex than Milton Crest, but I, I find that that sort of search for for glory is very much a Christian type thing. Um, like, <clears throat> his dreams of gluttony, I guess you could say, are really well uh, exemplified by Fleming at that during that mountain climb. Um, I'll just read a little bit here. He started on the top of the cairn, working as if the devil was after him, throwing the rough, heavy stones indiscriminately down the mountain to right or left. His hands began to bleed, but he hardly noticed. Now there were only two feet or so left. Nothing bloody nothing. He bent to the last pile, scrabbling feverishly, and then, yes, the edge of a metal box. A few more rocks away and there was the whole of it. A good old grey Vermac ammunition box, with the trace of some lettering still on it. Major Smythe gave a groan of joy. He sat down on a hard piece of rock and his mind went orbiting through Bentleys, Monte Carlo, Penthouse Flats, Cartiers, Champagne, Caviar, and incongruously, but because he loved golf, a new set of Henry Cotton Irons. Drunk with his dreams, Major S- Smythe sat there, looking at the grey box for a full quarter of an hour. So you know this is a guy who I mean we get that as a flashback right this is the story that he doesn't tell bond or sorry that that is told but never to bond in a conversation we get this as a flashback from him um, yeah I mean I, I do like the way he's written and I like what Fleming does with Oberhauser's character as well but I don't know like it, it didn't really it didn't do much for me as a short story I liked the connection to bond that was personal. I thought that was that that was good. It was motivating as well, and it was interesting. It certainly kept me interested in why, you know, this um, why this guy is the feature of the story. But I, I kind of felt like parts of the story I was reading before. Like after Smythe left with the money, his story becomes that of that of the one the governor shares with Bond in Nassau of Quantum of Solace. Like the marital bliss unravels itself and the same way it did. And it it just feels like I've heard this story before and I I didn't get the ending. The ending, no, we didn't get the ending before this ending is very unique and it's very kind of fresh, but um, it, yeah. I mean, overall, man, like I felt, I, I don't know. I think there might be some symbolism going on here. There's something sophisticated happening. Um, But Fleming also gives us an awful lot of info dump where we have to learn about dangerous marine animals. And, you know, he wants to show off who he's reading right now. Uh, You know, this American publication by a friend of his. And and there's just stuff in here that about the scorpion fish is, I guess, what's that? The scorpion fish is Oberhauser coming back? Like the sting of revenge or something, maybe? I, I don't know. But... I mean the stages of, of of this are are well researched and it's well structured, but it didn't really hugely get me. I, I like Dexter Smythe as rise and fall from riches and glory, but it's like Quantum of Solace. It's a morality tale, unlike yes. Quantum. Unlike Quantum, though, um, in From Your Eyes Only, this story does work a little more effectively, and it's structured, it with a bit of, it's structured with a bit of symbolic karma, which I like. It's not just a story for no purpose. Bond actually, though distant, has something to do with this. He's not just sitting and having a drink. Um, Fleming writes a lot of himself into this story, I think, as an older military man who's in poor health, and you know, I'm sure as... We've discussed many times Fleming had Intel and was part of procedure planning for missions that took people's lives and and caused great distress for families and I'm sure Fleming had his own demons to deal with, just as you know our grandfathers did from their time in war and other grandfathers and all men in service women yeah. have to deal it with almost with feels PTSD. like a projection
1: this character of Smythe feels kind of like a projection of Fleming of Fleming himself. You know, we have him just writing him like like he hes writing this probably towards the end of his life. Right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and you have him you know like you know like ailing health and just like you know with thromboses or pleurisy what have you you know like um, like Smythe is and a man who had regrets probably some of his actions in his life and whatnot and and I think he just kind of maybe embellished the actions of himself by projecting worse actions upon Smythe in the storyline.
0: Yeah, that's a good observation. I think you're probably smack on there. Um, my my angle totally. Uh, I went. Um, three for adversaries and allies four for narrative because I did like its writing and structure more than Quantum even though it was still a very similar story Um, the girl really the only girl we get here is Mary Smythe herself just uh, you know it's a little unfair I guess even ranking the girls given that it's not part of the story but you got uh, to (laughs) got to gave her two and a half Um, she could have been more interesting um, in her six or seven lines Uh, locations you were
1: were more generous than me but that's okay (laughs)
0: Um, in the um, yeah, locations I went three and a half Alps and Jamaica and the, I, I thought it was described okay. Um, the equipment I went three. There was a lot of equipment here. We had spear guns. We had the uh, the octopus. We have uh, lionfish. The gold bars themselves, and of course, Oberhauser was kind of intelligently used as a piece of equipment to get him where he needed to get. Overall, mm-hmm. those scores tally up to a 16 out of 25 for me on uh, this one.
1: Okay, all right. Well, um, uh, allies and adversaries, <laughs> I kind of saw Smythe and Bond as adversaries of each other, you know. In terms of narrative, Bond is the adversary for Smythe, and S- Smythe himself is a complex character. He's a loyal soldier and, nar- and, and a narcissist at the same time, who felt like the world, as I, w- as I was saying earlier, you know, owed him a favor. He was entitled because of his service. But he also was a man who fought his own demons, I think, based on his own, I guess, his upbringing or what, Christian upbringing or whatnot, but still, you know, managed to be quite, as you said, the glutton in life, you know, not glutton in terms of, of food or whatever, but just in terms of vices and pleasure, you know, and he wanted to make sure that he would have that for the rest of his life and he would do anything to obtain that, regardless of the cost psychologically or personally that it would have for him or to other people around him. And of course... We see through the, the destruction of his marriage and Mary's suicide and his own failing health and all of that, you know, the, that growing karmic bitterness, right? Um, I, I think he may have despised himself from the inside a little bit, but again, his personality would 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 dumb that down as best as possible to keep to keep you know the id going. You know what I mean? Um, to use a Freudian term. And you could see that, like the physical toll on his body and his health, was the millstone of this guilt. Uh, you could look at it that way. Hmm. I didn't, but yes, you could. But in the, end, I think, I, I think he was an intriguing character. Again, yeah, there was a morality tale to uh, aspect to his character. Uh, but I, I think he was intriguing in his own way, and I think he was complex, much more than the one in Quantum of Solace. And uh, I, I, I found him interesting, and I liked the portrayal of Bond in this as well. He's in it briefly, but. It's our James Bond as we know him more so than we saw, like, in other short stories in The Free Rise Only, especially Quantum of And he works well into the narrative, and he is an adversary, and he's also kind of, because of our own morality, our own moral relativism, we see Smiley as a villain through him very easily. So, let me achieve that with the characters, both of them. So, I give, you know, um, adversary and allies four. Narrative, I'm like you, I'm at four. A great morality tale with Mother Nature providing proper bizarre karma. Quite uh, the quite girls. Bizarre. Quite bizarre. The girls. I'm going to say one, <laughs> uh, just, just on the just on on the on the on the structure of the novel itself. I, I don't really have much of a of a of a of a criteria there for girls.
0: Well, I didn't either, but I went to five because I figured like a lot of men who. I mean, th- this this guy is not a cookie cutter, but. You know, by settling down in a place with a woman, like allowing a woman to kind of um this is gonna sound very Fleming, but allowing a woman to kind of change his future and give him domestic retirement as such with his money, that slowed him down to the point where if he stayed on the run, different places every other year, there's a good chance he wouldn't have been caught up, you know, like major like major Gonzalez and for your eyes only. If he just kept moving around buying property, maybe he wouldn't have been found out, you know?
1: But Oh, that that's definitely that's definitely true. Um, she's the one that kind of, what was the word, lowered his, um, defenses, I suppose, and, and made him, you know, uh, docile, you know, to, mm-hmm. to the issues and and his health caught up with them. And then he wasn't paying, and you get, you get sloppy, you make mistakes, you know, and things fall apart.
0: Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. And it's a hell of a lot of supposition on my part. Okay. So what about, um, locations?
1: Locations? Um, I, you know, I was, I was pretty strong with locations. I gave it a four. I, what you, The Kaiser Alps and are vividly described. Uh, the whole post-war situation, the atmosphere is there for sure. I think it worked well in the telling of the narrative, the climbing of the glacier, all of that. Um, just how he describes the view from the mountaintop and how he sets up the death of Oberhauser and removing the body and going down the mountainside and just in the coral reef and whatnot and I thought, you know, in terms of location, it was very strong, so I gave it a four.
0: Okay, and equipment?
1: Equipment, uh, we got the trusty Webley, the gold bars, as you mentioned. Three-pronged uh, spear, you know, which didn't serve him well in the end. And uh, as you said, Oprah is kind of a tool himself. Mary is kind of a tool in, in, in that respect, too, in the terms of how...
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, ...a sense of equipment where, you know, she's symbolic of settling down and, and whatnot. Um, but in the end... I'm gonna go with a straight three, I think, for equipment as a whole.
0: Okay, so that brings my total, as I said, a minute ago to sixteen twenty-five, and you are you are sixteen as well. So we're both sixteen out of twenty-five on this one.
1: Yeah, we'll get into the melancholic bit here regarding Ian Fleming. Okay. Uh, so 1964, uh, Ian's last year, basically. He's putting together The Man with the Golden Gun with, with William Plummer, his publisher, with Cape. And he's arranging all the details, but he's unable to refine the final product. And that's why kind of we get the rough Man with the Golden Gun that we did. Yeah. Um because of his alien health That's right because he was playing around a golf, where he did de- and uh, following it he'd soon develop blood clots a uh, uh, pleurisy basically it's called um, where blood clots develop on the lung and for a better part of that he was he he get he got the managed some of the final details of the man with the golden gun from a hospital bed in convalescence huh. when he did kind of recover a little bit uh, he was moving around but he wasn't going out to say, Jamaica or you know, the Goldeneye anymore. Uh, and this is also when he decided to stop writing his books. and Or or he, this was when he decided with William Plummer he and, Tom, and, and with Howard as another one of his uh, associates that he was not going to uh, be writing James Bond anymore. So The Man of the Golden Gun was to be the last James Bond story, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and we did a nice job on that, I thought, last episode, kind of putting that into the frame.
1: Yeah, we we diced it up pretty well, absolutely, in a positive sense. Um, and it was when he was recovering from this pleurisy um, that the final blow struck. We all remember that how his uh, mother, after Valentine, um, was killed in action. How she had to become looking out. She she became looking after Ian, his brother. Um, and eventually her, her her own daughter her which is, was Ian's half-sister uh, amaryllis um, and of course she wanted to make sure that you know her her family her brood was taken care of and so we know that she did everything possible to get uh, delinquent Ian Fleming you know into the world to do to, to, you know to, to do everything so this was a man who regardless of his own ambitions and his own um, talents was still pushed around society to become part of society to rise to rise in society by his mother and we were, I remember talking about how he was in Switzerland and she had broke off an engagement uh, she sent him to Austria where in Kitzbiel he took a finishing course a finishing school for young men and that's where he met the ski instructor who was like a father to him Hans Oberhauser mm-hmm. and then which is a convenient name for uh or significant name I should say for this talk um and then, of course, he, you know, how he was in the chalets in Austria there, uh, before the German occupation of Austria, uh, where he met uh, Conrad French and learned the, the basics of espionage and and whatnot, and before himself going into naval intelligence in the war. Now, so this, so his woman, his mother was always this figure in his life. So just soon after uh, he was recovering from his pleurisy, uh, his mother passed away. Um According to the man with the golden typewriter, this very this, this wonderful book of Ian Fleming's uh, correspondences, um, we learn that um, at the memorial service uh, to his mother, which was at his brother Peter's house, he asked for a strong drink, and Peter's maid, you know, who always knows all about all the restrictions the doctors have put on him—no smoking, no drinking—if you want to get better. Ian simply replies. Fuck the doctors, uh, quote unquote. Wow. And pretty much, yeah, it's, it's okay. So pretty much, uh, Fleming's health continues to decline throughout the year. His condition worsens, uh, it, as I said, it came from GoldenEye. He ignored all the doctor's advice and it smoked and drank to his life's conclusion. On August 11th, immediately after dinner to inaugurate him as captain of the golf club in Sandwich, he suffers a fatal heart attack immediately after dinner, um, And this was also the date of his his son's Casper's birthday, uh, his son with Anne. Um, Tragically, 10 years later, Casper will have died of a uh, drug-induced suicide, his only son. Amaryllis, his half-sister, who has a bit of a nod in the Living Daylights, actually, um, because she was a cello player, um, she she, uh, arranges the memorial service in September at St. Bartholomew's Cathedral. The Man with the Golden Gun is published posthumously, as is a short story collection we are about to delve into. Um, and secondly, you know a great you know a great literary giant has left the world but um, of course the legacy of James Bond lives on and on and on but um, you can't help you know feeling a bit of melancholy you know and a bitterness a bittersweetness you know in terms of uh, Ian Fleming leaving this world. to put a positive spin on that, There's a great quote um, that I found about Ian Fleming, and this is what he said, uh, you know, regarding to how he wanted to spend the remainder of his life or the rest of his life, you know, looking on it in a more positive angle. This was still in 1964 when he was pretty much run down already, and you could see it in his face, you know, that the end was somehow near. Uh, I don't want yachts, racehorses, or a Rolls Royce. I want my family and my friends and good health and to have a small treadmill with a temperature of 80 degrees in the shade and in the sea to come to every year for two months. And to be able to work there and look at the flowers and fish and somehow to give pleasure, whether innocent or illicit, to people in their millions. Well, you can't ask for more. True enough. I like that. (laughs) To give pleasure, innocent or illicit. (laughs) True enough. That sums up Ian Fleming, you know?
0: And he had had a couple of heart attacks earlier in his life too, hadn't
1: he? Yeah. He, he, he well, he had heart attacks, but he had like heart conditions and other problems. Okay. I, I can't quote you on the on the heart attacks per se, but his health was in decline for the past year or so. Writing the man with the golden gun, and even when he was writing, you only lived twice as well. Right. Um, one and another thing here that um, William Plomer. We know as his publisher that, you know, that he wrote to and it was a big part of his career in getting Bond books off the ground. At St. Bartholomew's, William performer has said, Let us remember him as he was on top of the world with his foot on the accelerator, laughing at absurdities, enjoying discoveries absorbed in his many interests and plans, fascinated and amused by places and people and facts and fantasies, an entertainer of millions, and for us a friend never to be forgotten.
0: it's oh, a nice tribute.
1: Indeed, indeed.